Okay. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings, session number 33, our 33rd session. We've been doing this now for quite some time. And uh, we are, of course, still in Chapter 7. This will be class number 5 on Chapter 7, and I think we're making excellent progress. Um, uh, quick, uh, A couple quick announcements before we uh, jump back into the text. Um, one, of course, the primary announcement, we're still in the middle of our fall fundraising campaign. Fall fundraising campaign has been going really, really well so far. Uh, we uh, Last week, you may remember... Um, I uh, on well on Twitter I was talking about this how we were at about twenty five thousand uh, dollars uh, given and pledged already at the beginning of last week and a goal was to get up to thirty thousand by the end of the week and as of now at the end of the weekend we are at uh, almost thirty five thousand actually about thirty four thousand so um, that's been that's really exciting we're hoping to get to forty thousand by the end of this coming week uh, looking down the road a little bit. Um, we're having our big uh, celebration uh, 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 webathon, which we always do at the end of our campaign. That's going to be happening on the 14th, Saturday, the 14th of October. Uh, looking to start that at noon. Uh, and it's going to be just sort of a, a celebration of all kinds of different stuff that we do uh, here at Mythgard and Signum and uh, special guests and, and chats and discussions and, uh, and readings and really fun stuff. So I hope you'll be able to... Uh, I uh, hope you'll be able to to join me there. Uh, so yeah, so thanks to everybody who has given in the fundraising campaign. If you haven't yet, uh, I hope you I hope you'll consider it. Uh, we uh, we really rely a, a lot on that. I'm uh, finishing a video right now uh, where I'm going to sort of explaining a little bit more about like Signum and what we're doing. I know a lot of people are kind of involved in one or two of our programs and might not really kind of understand the big picture. Uh, so the, you know, the video I'm working on right now is to explain the big picture and then talk a little bit after that about uh, about our finances. Where, what do we do with the money that we're given and everything, you know, to kind of talk about that stuff. So um, uh, look for those here uh, in the next uh, in the next few days over the course of this week. Don't forget also that uh, I, we're going to be doing a, a drawing for some giveaways, our, our, our asynchronous uh, drawing for uh, uh, for everyone who has given. Uh, and sort of noted their gift in connection to the Exploring the Lord of the Rings class. So we're going we're gonna to be uh, doing a drawing of everybody who's given of, uh, of any size. All you have to do, if you've given a gift already or if you're planning to give a gift, just after you do, send an email to donate at signumu.org uh, and uh, just mention Exploring the Lord of the Rings in the subject line, and we'll make sure to enter you uh, into the drawing there. Um, it's very happy to to, to kind of uh, give away some stuff. And what we're giving away, as I mentioned last time, we're giving away books. I love giving away books. But it's not just books, actually. Uh, these are pretty cool books. So you can choose among some of the Mythgard Academy books that we've done in the past. Um, any one of these uh, books, of course, you're welcome. Uh, you're welcome to choose. Uh, and um, we... So... Uh, but it's not just that we'll give you this book. The other thing I'm going to be doing in connection with the books uh, is also I'm going to be making up a custom book plate for the winners. Um, so where I'll, you know, sort of, you know, talk a little bit about the book, mention some of my favorite parts, some of my favorite things that we did in the when we when we did the sessions on those, um, some of my favorite things that came out of those discussions and stuff. So I have a few notes and things that I can kind of... Um, 
uh, customized for you and everything, which I think would be a lot of fun. So, um, so that's what we're 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 doing for our for our drawing giveaway and just an, another way to uh, to sort of uh, say thank you to you guys. Of course, for those of you who have given, no, we have lots of other ways that we like to say thank you to our uh, uh, to our donors. Uh, lots of uh, things that we like to uh, to to give away, whether they are. Um, the ability to participate in some of our programs, like for instance, everyone who gives $100 or more over the course of the year uh, is welcome onto the Council of the Wise, which means you get to to, to nominate. Um, and, you know, so to be part of the discussion where the final slate of our uh, uh, of our books that were, of what, what, what we're going to talk about in the Mythgard Academy is uh, sent out to our electorate. So uh, you can you can nominate and, and kind of have a real voice in, in what books uh, um uh, we do there. So anyway, uh, it, th that's a really, that's a really fun, uh, uh, kind of privilege. We, you'll get, you get access to, uh, uh, the lecture archives, the course archives of, uh, previous Sigmund University graduate courses. It's, uh, there's lots of re really, really great stuff. Um, so again, thank you to everybody who has donated. If you haven't yet, I hope you will consider it. If you're listening to this, uh, asynchronously, you know, I have, there's, there's, there's still time. Uh, you know, this is, of course, for Signum's annual fund, uh, and uh, we are very happy to receive your donations at any time. So, uh, uh, again, thanks to everybody. We really rely on your support. Now, um, one quick thing about from last week's uh, uh, discussion that I wanted to pick back up on before we move on today. Um, and that's uh, Lincoln. I want to come back to your. You had mentioned this live in class last week, and then you posted about it as well. Uh, and so I was, uh, I was wanting to come back to it. Lincoln was thinking about is sort of uh, the, the issue of the, the galloping, galloping, galloping from the east specifically. Um, and you know, when I talked about it, my, my first response, uh, Lincoln was kind of to uh, was uh, kind of to. Um, Dismiss that a little bit in the sense that, I mean, yes, it's true, of course, if Gand if it's Gandalf's hooves, he's coming from the south generally. I mean, he's coming up the Greenway from the south, uh, from Rohan. Um, and, of course, the thing that I said then, which I still think is perfectly true, is, well, so are the Black Riders, right? So, I mean, who exactly is coming uh, from the east? Um, but, uh, um, Lincoln, the, the thing that I would emphasize here which i think is 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 actually something that you touched on i haven't uh quoted your your post on the slide um because i just wanted to kind of touch on it briefly well anyway my version of briefly but uh but lincoln i think in your post to me you actually touched on the critical point and that is that the e is capitalized in galloping 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 from the east capital e right um what that suggests to me is it's not a cardinal direction that he's focused on. That is, you know, it's not like in his dream, he's like, hark, I hear the galloping of hooves. From which direction are they coming? Is it north? No, it's not northeast. It is from the east, right? That is, he's not like leaning out the window trying to figure out what direction uh, they're coming from. The, 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 the concept of them galloping from the east, capital E East, pretty much always means Mordor. Like if something comes from the East, capital E, that's the, the East is a, so, you know, so we've got, we've got some definite things associated with the East, capital E, just as we have some definite things associated with the West, capital W, right? 
Um, so whenever we're talking about the West, capital W, we are talking about across the sea, right? We're talking about Elvenholm, Valinor, right? When we're talking about the East, capital E, we're generally talking about Mordor. We're generally talking about uh, Sauron, right? So my, uh, my reading of that, therefore, is that um, notice that that phrase, from the East, is the final phrase in the description of Frodo's dream as he's transitioning out of it and having his own reaction. Remember, it's right after that, from the East. Black Riders, says Frodo, right? My, uh, my suspicion, my suspicion is that uh, the from the East is the, like, the transition point into his, like, my whole argument was that this was interpretation by Frodo and misinterpretation that in the context of the dream, it seems that the galloping, galloping, galloping hooves are Gandalf on Shadowfax uh, coming after he's been rescued uh, and coming to Frodo's assistance, that it's supposed to be reassuring. But when he hears the galloping of hooves, all he can think of are the black riders who are chasing him and of whom he is afraid. And so he immediately associates the sound of the hooves with the black riders. I think that that from the East is something that we can associate there. That we can see that association beginning right there. Galloping, galloping, galloping. First of all, I I, I wanted to pick back up on another comment that was made that I think we didn't do enough with. Um, And that is um, the, the, uh, the onomatopoetic nature of that repetition, right? Galloping, galloping, galloping. Um, and how, how it sounds like the galloping of a horse's hoof, right? As, you know, many poets have taken advantage of that uh, fact in the past. Um, that does not, is not, the onomatopoeia of galloping, galloping, galloping works for a single horse galloping, right? Nine horses together don't sound like galloping, galloping, galloping. Right, the, the the sounds aren't separated enough like that. That nine horses all galloping together are like a thunder of hooves. Right, um, they don't sound like galloping, galloping, galloping. That's this again. That's the sound of a single horse. Um, so again, I don't think he's hearing black riders. I don't think the black riders are in his dream. Um, I think that that's his reading. That that's his interpretation. Uh, and that the from the east is his own thought, like his, his, his thought, the one that catapults him sort of out of the dream into thinking black riders. Right. Um, um, so anyway, yeah, that's, that's, that's my, my thought on that. Like, and as I said, I, I don't think it's all about the map and the, and the cardinal points in the directions. I don't think it's about that at all. I think it's about like, thinking back to the Tom Bombadil question, right? Like the, who are you question, right? What are these hooves, right? Who, who's, whose hooves is he hearing? Is this a good thing or a bad thing? And he decides, he feels, his reaction is that it's a bad thing. Um, and I think he's wrong. I think he's, I think he's incorrect. I think he's misinterpreting. I think his fear is misleading him. Um, okay. Um, let's jump back into the text here today. I want to see if we can get, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to try to, I'll try to leap forward. Uh, these first few passages uh, are, are are interesting, but somewhat less dense than some of the other ones. And I want to see if we can get to to Tom's tales today. So we'll see if we can get that far. Um, my, we're going to touch pretty quickly on the theme that I was pointing to in my title for today: the perilous quest in a rain delay, uh, which 
strikes me as very interesting and somewhat odd, right? Uh, it's kind of hard to imagine from the beginning of this passage uh, after they wake up that they're all still really thinking with the kind of urgency that they have had uh, in the past about their journey. But anyway, we of course didn't talk about our fourth sleeper, uh, who is Sam. Uh, We got Frodo's dream and Pippin's dream and Mary's dream, and now we get Sam's dream. As far as he could remember, Sam slept through the night in deep content if logs are contented. So, of course, we get a joke about Sam sleeping like a log and not having any dreams. Um, But, of course, I can't help but remember, and, uh, you know, and I'm sure that many of you were thinking as well, this seems fairly conspicuous, doesn't it? Um, That Sam is the only one unaffected by this. The, The one thing that the three of them, the three dreams, all have in common, or... No, let me be more cautious about that. The one thing that the three dreamers have in common is fear, right? Merry and Pippin are still, they they have fearful dreams, right? Very understandable fearful dreams after their traumatic experience in the willow tree earlier that day. Frodo has a dream which seems to be intended to be an encouraging dream, but becomes for him a fearful dream, right? Um, He... Sam does not have a dream. And of course, we have to remember it was Sam as well who resisted the willow tree in the first place, right? It was only Sam who remained free of that. And that seems to me, um, uh, that seems to me non-coincidental, right? That the one who resisted the song of the willow is also the one who doesn't have, uh, have dreams. Tom, I love that. Uh, I love that reading. Tom says, uh, in the dream, he seems to have had that axe that he was looking for to rescue Mary and Pippin. So you're thinking that Sam, this is a tri- or, or Tom, this is a triumphant dream of Sam's, right? That, uh, you know, he, uh, he had the tree down, right? And so he sleeps like a log. I mean, I agree that the whole log connection in the context, right, of their issues with trees earlier in the day and his plainly expressed desire to have all to turn old man Willow into a log uh, is kind of is kind of interesting and kind of funny, right? Um, but uh, um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, Yeah, so I, I, part of this, I think, is certainly, I mean, part of this is a joke at Sam's expense, right? Which is good-natured, it seems to me. Um, but it also seems to be in character. What does this show us? You know, does it show us his courage? I'm not necessarily sure it shows us his courage. Um, but there does seem to be a kind of... One thing that we can notice about Sam already is there does seem to be a um, a sort of, what, um, imperviousness, I want to say? Um, imperviousness to, I don't know, stuff, right? There's a kind of a solidity uh, to Sam. He, he, he is resistant uh, to the Willow's song. He is not fearful. He remains kind of grounded. And yet, uh, Lincoln, Sam is more practical and common sensey than the other three hobbits. That is definitely um, a correlation. He seems more hardy 
Julia says, which I think is right. Um, yeah, yeah. Tillian is suspecting that um, Sam's very restfulness seems to suggest to him that old man Willow's influence is at work in the evil dreams of the other, or at least of at least two of them, right? Um, so Tillian, your reasoning being that since we know Sam to be resistant to that, the fact that he is sleeping soundly and the others are dreaming suggests that a thing that he is, uh, uh, you know, sort of resistant to that they're not is behind it. Right. And that seems possible. Um, Blue wizard. I agree with you here. Um, and it will be an interesting thing to keep an eye on as we move forward here through the rest of this chapter. Blizzard says that he's surprised that we don't get a glimpse into Sam's reaction uh, to Tom Bombadil and Goldberry, given how awestruck he is at other times. Um, yeah, it's true. Now, um, Ardent Crayon on Twitter uh, says maybe Sam doesn't have the imagination to be really afraid. Um, and I wonder, I wonder if, if, cause see, but it's hard though, right? We can't underestimate Sam's um Sam's imagination. We know Sam to be poetic. We know Sam to be highly impressionable in some ways, right? Elves, sir, remember. Uh, and remember his whole dreamy encounter with the elves um, up at the Woody End. He was the one who was most profoundly affected by the interaction with the, uh, with, with the elves. And so I definitely, um, I definitely think that... Um, Blue Wizard is right to say that it, it seems, well, at least it's interesting that we don't get his reaction, because um, you would, it would make sense that Sam would be one of the most readily affected, one of the most easily affected. Um, for instance, think about the contrast that we've had between Sam and Pippin in this regard, right? Pippin has been kind of the oblivious one, oblivious to lots of different things. Uh, on their journey initially, um, and uh, and definitely not, uh, you know, and Sam being much more sensitive both to things like the elves and also being um, more sensitive to Frodo and what Frodo was going through and, and thinking about and stuff. Um, so I, I agree. It is interesting that we get so little uh, from Sam here. Um yeah, yeah. Um, good. Yeah, Tom says that the gaffer and Farmer Maggot are also resistant, uh, and all of them are connected closely to the Earth. Tom, uh, thinking, I assume, of their resistance to the Black Riders, right, and what we see from them uh, when the Black Riders come in. Um, yeah, that kind of proximity to the Earth, that seems to be that what I was kind of vaguely pointing at saying things like well grounded and stuff like that. But, but again, Sam is the mixture, right? I mean, at the same time that we want to characterize him as commonsensical and, and uh, you know, uh, grounded and, and uh, you know, there's earth under his feet and all that kind of thing. Um, he also is one of the most poetic of all of them. Right. Um, Remember, this is the sailing, sailing, sailing guy, right? Um, and, uh, you know, and I believe in the old tales, no matter what Ted Sandyman may say, that's Sam, right? So, uh, I don't know. Yet, uh, Tony was saying, you know, is it, uh, is it faith? Is it his faith? That is to say, because remember, 
uh, Tony is right to recall, as Tony, this is what I assume you're recalling, the others of them, all the other three had to be kind of reassured, right? They had to get this sort of um, uh, uh, memory of Goldberry or Tom's words to say, hey, don't forget, you're safe, right? It's okay, right? Nothing passes the door save moonlight and starlight, right? Um, nothing can get in. You're fine. You're not going to drown. Um, you're not in a willow tree. Uh, the Black Riders are not going to take you away, right? And Sam needs no reassurance. He's been told um, he's the only one who, like, totally obeys, right? Rest until the morning, they say. Sam does it, right? The rest of them don't. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Eruheb is suggesting that... Uh, Though Sam is awed by the elves, since Tom and Goldberry are less lofty but deeper and nearer to mortal heart in comparison to the effect of the elves, uh, so he is more comfortable with them. Possibly. Possibly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good. Um, lots of comments. I'm not going to be able to get to all of them. Um Yeah, exactly. Matthew was just saying exactly what I was thinking. Tom says he'd no nightly noises, and Sam takes him at his word and rests without care. Um, that does seem to be, that does seem to be involved there. I think. Um, so, if we want to look at this as a as a sign of some kind of strength in his character, that seems to me the the kind of strength that he has here. Um, the rest of them are fretting anyway, despite the fact that. Uh, that they were told not to. Um, he doesn't. Right? Um, and I, I do think that that's important. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. Let's, uh, let's move forward. They woke up, all four at once, in the morning light. Tom was moving about the room, whistling like a starling. When he heard them stir, he clapped his hands and cried, Hey, come merry doll, dairy doll, my hearties. He drew back the yellow curtains, and the hobbit saw that these had covered the windows at either end of the room, one looking east and the other looking west. They leapt up refreshed. Frodo ran to the eastern window and found himself looking into a kitchen garden, gray with dew. He had half expected to see turf right up to the walls, turf all pocked with hoofprints. Actually, his view was screened by a tall line of beans on poles, but above and far beyond them, the gray top of the hill loomed up against the sunrise. It was a pale morning, in the east, behind long clouds like lines of soiled wool stained red at the edges, lay glimmering deeps of yellow. They spoke, the sky spoke of rain to come, but the light was broadening quickly, and the red flowers on the beans began to glow against the wet green leaves. Yes, Julia, I agree with you. Uh, a line of beans on poles is the most mundane, undreamlike thing I can imagine. And that is a really interesting transition, isn't it? Um, it's not just, oh, phew, we're safe after all. Like, oh, okay, the Black Riders weren't really here cir <clears throat> circling around the house or something, right? That didn't actually happen. He does have that thought. But it's not just that, right? Instead, we get confronted with this... Um, 
this extremely mundane scene, right? The kitchen garden of Tom Bombadil and Goldberry. Um, it is extremely tame, extremely mundane, right? Um, yeah, yeah, good, good. Um, yes, and Amathorn, I agree, Tolkien was masterful at painting with words. Uh, this is where, it's in passages like this that I think that we can really see or where we can really hear Tolkien, the landscape painter here. This is exactly the kind of scene that Tolkien really loved to paint. Um, you know, he didn't, sometimes he painted like fun and, uh, you know, sort of memorable scenes or moments from, um, uh, from the books. Uh, like for instance, I'm thinking of the drawing that he did of, uh, the troll camp, right? With, uh, Thorin about to come into the troll camp and the, 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 the trolls hiding behind trees and Bilbo peeping out. And so there are some moments that he sort of chooses to illustrate within the narrative. But most of his illustrations are just scenes, just descriptions. Um, and uh, I think that that's, um, uh, I, I, you know, I, I think that that's, that's, that's how he saw them. And his descriptions, you can see that too. That the, the description of the sky, right? Um, it was a pale morning in the east behind long line, long clouds like lines of soiled wool stained red at the edges lay glimmering deeps of yellow. See how he has the colors so clearly? And he said, this is not just like, I want to say it's sunrise. And so I'm going to like think of a description. For this. Like, this is, this is clearly a, a picture he has clear in his head, right? This is a scene that he's imagining and he's describing it for us. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, several of you have pointed out the the prevalence of the East in this passage. Well, of course, the other thing that is always associated with the East and always associated with the West, right, is sunrise and sunset. Um, uh, so, of course, we're, there's a lot of focus on the East here because it's the rising of the sun. And there, I think, we can't help but see um, a contrast, Right. Um, the East was clearly associated in Frodo's dream with fear, right? Whether it was a misinterpretation, as I think, or not, whether if he was hearing the hooves of the uh, of the Black Riders and was correct in his fear, one way or the other, the East is associated uh, with fear and with the source of fear, right? But notice what we get here. Um, we get this. We get this contrast, and this is a contrast that I think is important. There's, there's. Two different things that are associated with it. the east is on, is simultaneously associated with the shadow, but also with the dawn, right? That's the sort of the beautiful paradox of the east um, throughout the story, right? And it's one of the things that I think in the end um, we're going to see Sam perceiving, right? Um, you know, in the great star passage uh, in the Return of the King while he's in Mordor right? Um, at the end, there are two Easts, right? There is the East where the shadow dwells, right? Um, in the land of Mordor, where the shadow lies. And then there's the East, the gates of, of the morning, right? Which is the true East of the world. Um, and that's, you know, where, where the light comes from 
from whence day comes uh, and from which shadows flee. And I think that that's an important element here, you know, that behind the shadow, there is always the dawn, right? Exactly, Marianne. Light and high beauty remain. Um, and I think that that's part of the, I, I mean, you know, that, that's a lot to like read into a description of the sunrise here. But again, the, 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 the point about the East is, I think, a good one and an important one. But, I, and, but again, that's, those are the two things um, that we always see. Because, of course, of course, it's also sunrise, right? Um, as well as thinking about the shadow in the East. Um, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, good. I could tell several of you were thinking of the thinking of the star passage there as well. Okay. Um, and of course, you can see how those of you who know the Silmarillion will know the passage that I'm playing with there in my, uh, you know, my subtitle for this slide was Day Comes Again. Uh, right. And of course, if you're thinking about Hurin and the Fens of Serac, you're, you're, you're tracking with me there. Um, but this is a little more cheerful than that one, right? Okay. Pippin looked out of the eastern of the western window, sorry, down into a pool of mist. The forest was hidden under a fog. It was like looking down onto a looking down onto a sloping cloud roof from above. There was a fold or channel where the mist was broken into many plumes and billows, the valley of the Withywindle. The stream ran down the hill on the left, and vanished into the white shadows. Near at hand was a flower garden, an eclipsed hedge silver netted, and beyond that Gray shaven grass, pale with dew dot with dew drops. There was no willow tree to be seen. Of course, Pippin was dreaming about willow trees. So just as Frodo is relieved to see that there are not hoof marks all over the turf, uh, so too Pippin is delighted to see that there was not, in fact, any willow trees scratching at the window uh, over the course of the night. Um, so um, anyway, remember the mist in the withy window they have we have we have seen right the hobbits have seen and we have seen a scene very similar to this right that is looking out from a height they're up on a hill right there's another hill behind up down under hill right uh there's there's the, the but they're they're elevated fairly significantly above the withy window here um, so as he looks out the western window the western window is looking down into the valley of the withy window and we have seen this before Right, the Withywindle after dawn, uh, or the the Withywindle Valley, seen over the treetops after dawn, looking and seeing the mist there. And remember, the last time they saw this was from the Bald Hill, and the Bald Hill, as we were looking at it, seemed to be, um, uh, seemed to be uh, uh, almost taunting. Um, uh, that is, remember that the path led them there, right? The tree path led them straight to the bald hill and gave them this view, um, which was in the end misleading, um, but also gave them this view of the Withywindle Valley. And that's when they, um, that's when, you know, when Mary said his piece about how that's the center from which all the queerness comes and how they definitely don't want to go that way. Um, and the mist that seemed to cling there uh, seemed to be sort of associated with the kind of, uh, the kind of magic and mystery of the Withywindle Valley was pretty ominous, that mist uh, that was lingering there. And remember, this was especially in contrast uh, to the the mist that we saw in Buckland, right, as they left in the in the pre-dawn darkness, um, which was, you know, the, there was, you know, uh, Crick Hollow was covered in mist as well. But there it was domestic and decorative mist. It just kind of made things look peaceful 
And one of the things that was emphasized was the, the, the effect on the spider webs, right? How the, 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 as in Tom Bombadil's garden, the clipped hedge is silver netted, right? Um, which is, of course, a very beautiful effect, the, the effect of, of mist and dew uh, on a spider web. Um, especially one like that that's on that's on a hedge. You know, one of those spider webs which is almost perfectly invisible under every circumstance except for that, right? Then when the dew fa- falls on it, you can see how many spider webs there are all over the place on the hedge, right? Um, I see that all the time at my own house. Um, um, and yeah, so uh, Tom, I agree. Mist is a very normal thing in this kind of landscape at this time of year. Absolutely. Um, what's interesting to me is how different it looks from here, right? We saw it from the bald hill, and then it was like that is the ma- the sort of the center of the queerness, right? That's where that's where everything is is questionable and uncertain and dangerous. And now they're looking from a different hill down into exactly the same valley, seeing exactly the same mist. And all of a sudden, look, it's described like the mist back in Buckland was described, right? They are not, not only are they not inside a willow tree, they are in this little enclave of that feels like civilization. They're safe from the forest, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, so let's keep going. Good morning, merry friends, cried Tom, opening the, the eastern window wide. A cool air flowed in. It had a rainy smell. Sun won't show her face much today, I'm thinking. I have been walking wide, leaping on the hilltops. Since the gray dawn began, nosing wind and weather, wet grass underfoot, wet sky above me, I waken Goldberry, singing under window, but not wakes hobbit folk in the early morning. In the night, little folk wake up in the darkness, and sleep after light has come. Ring-a-ding-dillo! Wake now, my merry friends, forget the nightly noises. Ring-a-ding, dillo-dell, derry-dell, my hearties. If you come soon, you'll find breakfast on the table. If you come late, you'll get grass and rainwater. Okay, um, so you can hear the rhythm, right? This is just again, one of those speeches which, apart from the rhyme, is almost perfect uh, Tom Bombadil sound, right? Um, and yes, uh it is interesting, isn't it, Perry? Uh, and S.R. Perry, I'm not sure how to read your name. Um, uh, is it, are those initials? Senior Perry? <laughs> it's just Perry? Anyway, um, uh, it's, uh, uh, it is interesting that Tom knows of their dreaming, right? He doesn't have to be told that they had bad dreams. Um, he's been aware of them the whole time he's aware of everything that is going on forget that it's not just that he knows they've been they've had a restless night it's not just like he heard them in the night or something like that right which he might have done um or was aware of them stirring or something like that he knows exactly what it was forget the nightly noises right nightly noises have been bothering them um um so yes tom definitely knows everything that's going on beneath his roof yeah we definitely see that um yeah, yeah. Um, good, good. Um, <laughs> Eric Hebb, that's a great question. Um, where has Tom been? 
uh, look at what he says about himself, right? I have been walking wide, leaping on the hilltops since the gray dawn began, nosing wind and weather, wet grass underfoot, wet sky above me. Leaping on the hilltops? Really? Like from hilltop to hilltop? Or he's just been going on the hilltops leaping? Or, you know, like, first I'm going to leap around a little on this hilltop. Then I'm going to go over to the next hilltop. And I'm going to leap around on that one, right? Um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because Tom, um, Lincoln is clearly in, uh, in favor of hilltop to hilltop. That certainly is what I imagine, right? It's not necessarily plausible, right? Either would suit Tom. I agree, Gilbum Fear. Um, but, um, but, you know, there is this sense of uh, you can't rule out either one, right? We see him leaping and bounding all over the place, right? So that he's traveling around on the hilltops, leaping and bounding. I mean, of course he is, right? How else would he, would he go about, right? Um, but that image of him, you know, leaping from hilltop to hilltop, uh, like you never know what he's uh, going to be able to do, right? Um, yeah. Can the word plausible be applied to Tom? <laughs> uh, Tom Hillman asks. Yeah, that's a great, that's, that's a great question. Um, yeah, and Julia, you're absolutely right. We will certainly see plenty of evidence of Tom being able to, uh, uh, to apparently cross long distances very, very quickly, right? So, I mean... You know, who's to say? Um, and I agree, Marielle. It is exuberant. Like the, just the exuberance of it. Whether or not he was leaping from hilltop to hilltop, that concept, right, is very is very Tom Bombadil. Um, I, you know, I don't know if he was actually doing that, but that image really conveys Tom Bombadil's whole, whole attitude. Um, He wakened Goldberry, singing under window, but not wakes Hobbit folk in the early morning. Um, he's uh, marveling at the fact that they are still sleeping, right? That they're sleeping in. Um, in. In the night, little folk wake up in the darkness and sleep after light has come, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Clearly, he's not bothered by this, right? Clearly, he's not upset, but he's his reaction, ring-a-ding right? What exactly does that mean? I don't know, um, but he calls them his merry friends again, right? There's this call to merriment, um, ring-a-ding dillodell, derry-dell, my hearties. Um, and that seems to be part of the invitation, Right? Uh, ring-a-ding-dillo, wake now, my merry friends, imperative, forget the nightly noises, imperative, ring-a-ding-dillo-dell, derry-dell, my hearties. Doesn't that sound kind of imperative, too? Right? I don't know what it means, but it sounds a little imperative. Um, if you come soon, you'll find breakfast on the table. If you come late, you'll get grass and rainwater. 
right? Conditional uh, indicative statements, right? This is what's going to happen. If you do this, this will happen. If you do this, that will happen. Um, so he doesn't end with commands. Um, but um, uh, but yeah, at Matthew sees parallels to the elves teasing the uh, teasing the dwarves in The Hobbit. Matthew, what I see the closest parallel to is the elves teasing Bilbo under his window by singing under in the with the lullaby, the the, the outrageous lullaby song that they sing. Uh, at the end of The Hobbit, not at the beginning. Um, yeah, yeah, that I think is uh, is 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 what I see the the the, the primary is is what I'm mostly reminded of in this scene. Um, yeah, Erekeb thinks that ring a ding dillodell is just exuberance overflowing into speech, not nonsense, but sounds more closely tied to thought than normal speech. Yes, Erekeb, I would definitely agree that what we see there is him modulating out of their language, right? Does that mean that he is speaking another formal language that they don't know? Well, I don't know exactly, but I, 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 I do think that he's still communicating, right? Just not, not in the common speech when he's saying those things. Um, Blue Wizard is, you're absolutely right. He speaks with lots and lots of exclamation points, right? Uh, that is, uh, that is, that is very true. Um, yeah, good. Um, yes, the language of joy, Julia. Exactly. We can get to that later on. Um, let's keep going here. Needless to say, not that Tom's threat sounded very serious. The hobbits came soon and left the table late, and only when it was beginning to look rather empty. Neither Tom nor Goldberry were there. Tom could be heard about the house, clattering in the kitchen, and up and down the stairs, and singing here and there outside. The room looked westward over the mist-clouded valley, and the window was open. Water dripped down from the thatched eaves above. Before they had finished breakfast, the clouds had joined into an unbroken roof, and a straight gray rain came softly and steadily down. Behind its deep curtain, the forest was completely veiled. As they looked out of the window, there came falling gently, as if it was flowing down the rain out of the sky, the clear voice of Goldberry singing up above them. They could hear a few, they could hear few words, but it seemed plain to them that the song was a rain song, as sweet as showers on dry hills, that told the tale of a river from the spring in the highlands to the sea far below. The hobbits listened with delight, and Frodo was glad in his heart, and blessed the kindly weather, because it delayed them from departing. The thought of going had been heavy upon him from the moment he awoke, but he guessed now that they would go no further that day. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, Perry, I hear the same thing there, right? On the one hand, yeah, this is typical British weather, right, that's being described. Um, but that's one of the things that makes this so striking to me, right? Um, uh, the idea that they're like, oh, it's rain. Well, needless to say, we're not going out in the rain, right? We're going to have to get, we're, we're calling off the quest because it's raining outside, right? Um, that assumption I find really striking. It makes sense in the house of Tom Bombadil, but uh, but nevertheless, I do find it uh, a little odd under the circumstances. Um, 
Valori, yes, you are absolutely right. Um, the 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 singing the history of the rain, right, or the rain singing the history of the river, uh, is very Kalevala. Uh, that's that's uh, it sounds a lot like the Finnish Kalevala, exactly the kind of thing that we would get uh, in the Kalevala. Um, uh, yes, yes. Um, Arden Crayon asks, did uh, Legos describe the stream as Lorian near Lorian as singing as well? Yeah, the the Nimrodel. Uh, yes. Now there he's he's speaking. You know, do you hear the sound, the voice of Nimrodel? Uh, he's speaking explicitly about uh, the waterfall, right? Which is which is quite nearby uh, and which they can hear from a distance and which has a very musical note. Um, but um, but yeah, so it's not exactly singing like this, right? We don't get it. Um, it is. Nimrodel is personified, but it is personified like in memoriam, right? I mean, it's it 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 recalls Nimrodel, and it's associated in the mind of the elves with the story of Nimrodel, the story and the song of Nimrodel. Um, here, this is the story of the river itself, not of an elf maiden who lived near the river, right? Of the river itself, and that is what Goldberry uh, is singing of. And absolutely, Tony, she's singing a song about her mom, right? Um, uh, so, yeah, Lady Shmebuak, I do think the implication is that Goldberry is bringing the rain. Absolutely. Um, uh, Tom, I think, is going to make that explicit uh, fairly soon when he when he responds to this. Um, but um, okay, so they they're eating their breakfast by themselves, right? And we've got the rain going on outside. And the sound of Goldberry's voice uh, singing, um, and the delight with which they hear it. Now, this is the sentence that I find a little surprising. The hobbits listened with delight. That's no surprise, right? Um, they have received everything that Goldberry, especially, but both of them really have done with delight. Right? Delight is one of the major. Uh, uh, sort of elements, right, of the whole encounter with Goldberry and Tom. Um, it's the rationale behind their delight. It's what comes next that I find so interesting. And Frodo was glad in his heart and blessed the kindly weather because it delayed them from departing. Like, because it gave them an excuse not to depart. Um, I... Again, um, yeah, Perry says it seems Frodo has forgotten Gandalf at this point. Certainly forgotten any urgency with which Gandalf might attempt to inspire him, right? And Blue Wizard, I totally agree. Who doesn't love an, a, a cozy, rainy day, like a nice rainy day when you don't have to go out, right? Um, totally agree. Um, but of course, that's never happened to me while I was in the middle of a quest to save the world from doom while being pursued by the agents of evil, right, who are closing in on me at any moment. Um, uh, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's great, right? Um, but it just, it's a little peculiar to me. I can't help but feel, <laughs> right, Julia says that everybody knows that agents of evil don't don't travel in the rain, right? So you're perfectly safe, apparently, when it's raining. Um, now, they are perfectly safe in Tom Bombadil's house, and perhaps that's what we see here, right? You know, the, their confidence. Um, but um, 
but yeah, Tongo more exactly like that, that they're forgetting their cares uh, in this house. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that they are... There seems to me to be a kind of enchantment going on here, right? Um, I suspect that when Frodo blesses the kindly weather because it delayed them from departing, I think that he is understanding the rainy day, the rainy day being brought on by Goldberry, right? I think that he's understanding the rainy day as essentially an invitation, right? An invitation to protract their stay by another day. Um, this is not a day on which they're going to be met, you know, first thing in the morning with Tom saying, okay, time for an early start, right? Um, he seems to get the hint, like, they want us to stay uh, today. They, they don't want us to go. And that he, Frodo, is, he, he that's kindly, right? Um, he, he takes that kindly, um, he takes he, he he hears them as being kindly uh, in uh, in saying that, um, and and you're right, Julia. The fact that Tom didn't wake them up early, right? They were woken before the break of day, uh, the day before, right? By Mary, um, Tom lets them sleep in at first. But again, there's this kind of license that they've been given, right? This kind of permission that they're given to not only experience delight in their encounter here, but to to relax, right? Tony is recalling, of course, that Frodo was somewhat reluctant to leave the Shire and face his exile and danger. This might be some of that residual reluctance. In a sense, I mean, that certainly Tony in recent days seems to have been overcome by the his fear of the Black Riders, right? This, this urgent sense that his knowledge that agents of Sauron are pursuing him and already both before him and behind him. Um, but, um, but yes, Stephanie, I think that you're exactly right. Stephanie says it seems like the entire experience of being at Tom's is almost as if they stepped out of the world they had been in for a while. Yes, exactly. And that is precisely the experience that I think we're going to see from them as we move on into the conversation, uh, that he has with, that they, they, all of them have with Tom, uh, after this. Um, so that sense of I'm in this other space, right? Um, that it doesn't matter if we stay here an extra day. There, he's not. Th- I mean, nowhere in here enters the calculation. I would love to stay another day, but gosh, you know, this just gives the Black Riders more of a chance to find us, and you know, you know, delays can be dangerous, right? That was the t- chapter title originally. You know, the chapter title of chapter three, or one of the chapter titles that Tolkien tried out for chapter three. Um, but, um, but no, no. Um, yeah, yeah. So, okay. Um, let's, uh, let's keep, oh, my joke and the subtitle here, I called this slide good thing this isn't a witch house right because again i was reminded of the kind of irony there right um especially the phrasing of that last sentence really made me think that recall of course how we were talking about the irony of this right that uh um the uh the um 
the fact that you're in this scary wood right where you're attacked and almost killed by a magical tree and then you meet this random guy and he invites you back to his house and it looks super inviting and welcoming and everything and often this is a like the you know the beginning of the of the 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 brothers grim horror sequence right i mean like you you don't you don't go into the nice looking little cottage made of candy in the middle of the woods um and then of course what happens the next day right um they would he guessed now that they would go no further that day is <laughs> the line that really made really reminded me of that right but again i'm not suggesting that there's any malevolent intention obviously in tom or goldberry i'm just saying it really reminded me of that of the irony there right that um no no there's no intention on their part but but what what do we see happening like no sooner do they get to the cottage than all of a sudden now their defenses are down, right? And they're they're set at their ease and now they've been sidetracked from their journey and, and they, they thought they were just going to stay overnight, but now they're going to be staying longer and everything, right? Again, I'm not saying there's any real danger there, but what I am saying is that the closeness, the parallel of, you know, between Tom Bombadil's house and that sort of stare, that, that, fairy tale stereotype witch house in the middle of the forest is 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 continuing right um and and the irony is therefore sharper um but i think that the the parallel is uh is is really is really fascinating yes julia says it's the witch house in arda unmarred right exactly the witch house as it was meant to be before it was corrupted right julia um yeah yeah okay the upper wind settled in the west, and deeper and wetter clouds rolled up to spill their laden rain on the bare heads of the downs. Nothing could be seen all round the house but falling water. Frodo stood near the open door and watched the white chalky path turn into a little river of milk and go bubbling away down into the valley. Tom Bombadil came trotting round the corner of the house, waving his arms as if he was warding off the rain, and indeed, when he sprang over the threshold, he seemed quite dry, except for his boots. These he took off and put in the chimney corner. Then he sat in the largest chair and called the hobbits to gather round him. This is Goldberry's washing day, he said, and her autumn cleaning. Too wet for hobbit folk, let them rest while they are able. It's a good day for long tales, for questions and, so, and for answers. So Tom will start the talking. Sorry, thing in the metrics here. This is Goldberry's washing day and her autumn cleaning. Too wet for hobbit folk, let them rest while they are able. It's a good day for long tales, for questions and for answers. So Tom will start the talking. It is that last. I wanted to confirm. I want to read it again to confirm. It is that last half line, which is an oddball, right? So Tom will start the talking is outside the meter of the rest of his speech, right? That's the bit that doesn't fit in with the rest. Um, which is kind of interesting, right? That kind of transition into him telling tales takes place outside of the poetry of his normal lines. That's kind of interesting. Um, yeah, Matt, I agree. There is something to the naming of the day. Goldberry's washing day. Matt says it seems to feel 
singular in the same way that Tom will no longer be going to the Valley of the Withy Window until the spring. Um, it feels like the hobbits have arrived for an obscure set of holidays. Yes, Goldberry's washing day um, doesn't necessarily, I would think, happen on the same day every year like a, like a holiday. Um, you know, like on this date every year is Goldberry's washing day. It might happen on different days, but she has a washing day, right, like this. Uh, with this kind of regularity. Um, but yes, there is that sense of there's a significance to this that they don't fully understand, right? Um, Goldberry's washing day and her autumn cleaning, right? What does that mean? We don't really know what that means, right? Um, she's washing the region clean with her rain. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like that. But again, clean of what exactly? Um, you know, what is, uh, what does that mean exactly? Um, yeah, Dime says, I always wondered what she needed to clean because it is, Dime, it is, does seem to be a play on, um, normal domestic housewifely duties, right? Um, washing day normally means laundry, right? The day when you get out the wash tub, uh, and you wash all the clothes and hang them out to dry, right? That's not Goldberry's washing day. Um, and there is also, of course, a spring cleaning day, uh, which everybody, uh, from Mole in Wind in the Willows on forward remembers, right? Um, so that kind of thing is normal. Goldberry is an autumn cleaning though. Um, and of course, washing day, um, any good housewife would not obviously pick a rainy day, right? It's, it's, it would be the opposite. You would pick a nice, beautiful, sunny day and for, to have as your washing day because you want to be able to dry your clothes on the line in the sun afterwards, right? So both of those things, the Goldberry's washing day and her autumn cleaning are recalling sort of traditional housewifely uh, activities, and yet they're reversed, right? Um, Yeah. Um, I now, Julia. I don't think it's literally laundry, right? Um, it does seem to be more spiritual, as you say, more figurative. I don't think I understand it. I'm not sure we have enough information to understand it, right? He says it's her washing day and her autumn cleaning. Um, I don't know what that means. I don't think we can know what that means exactly. Um, what we can see is that her washing day and her autumn cleaning are meteorological events which affect the whole region, right? It's a, it's a very rainy day in the old forest um, because it's Goldberry's washing day. Um, yeah, it does sound, Perry, like she's washing the forest. Not herself, chiefly, right? Um, yeah, it's not that I can't see things being dusty and needing to be cleaned, I guess, right? Um, but uh, but I'm not sure. I mean, maybe that's what it is. She needs to wash off the forest uh, in some sense. Um Arthur, I agree. Arthur asks, is she bathing um, herself? I don't know. And why would she do it in rain and not the river if she is? 
Um, is there a more spiritual sort of thing? Man of Rohan says maybe Old Man Willow has had the whole summer to evil up the Withywindle, and Goldberry is now infusing clean water into the Withywindle, and um, maybe, maybe it is a cleaning in a more spiritual sense, not just a physical cleaning, um, you know, of like, uh, you know, the dryness and dust of summer. That certainly seems um, uh, seems possible. I agree, Tom, that they do polish the table and they seem to have dishes, so there's no necessary reason to think that they don't do laundry, right? It could be literally washing day. Um, but yeah, I, I think to me, Tom, the contrast, that those reversals, right? Um, choosing, choosing a rainy day for washing day and or having a rainy day be washing day um, and the autumn cleaning instead of the spring cleaning um, suggests to me that it's, again, it's like but unlike uh, normal washing um, Stephanie asks why Tom tells them this, right? Yeah, why is he giving them information that doesn't actually explain, it's not going to really help them fully understand, other than what does it show? What does it convey? It does convey that Goldberry is, um, uh, that the rain is part of what Goldberry is doing, like showing her connection. They, they already feel it. Right, they hear her voice coming down and the rain coming down with her voice. The sense that she's causing the rain, um, and you know, very much in connection with the rain, they already got. He seems to be confirming that for them, right? Um, yeah, Galandar asks, is it possible that uh, possibly just a joke on Tom's part? Um, his using a domestic expression the hobbits would understand uh, to emphasize how foreign this whole situation is to them. That 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 kind of thing feels kind of right, actually. That those two reversals, the washing day reversal and the autumn cleaning reversal, um, are kind of jokes, right? That he's establishing a sort of a joking parallel, but also anti-parallel to what they're familiar with, because uh, they're not gonna they're not gonna really get it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, So it's a good day for long tales, for questions and for answers. So Tom will start the talking, he says, outside of his rhythm. Oh, yeah, a couple of you have been pointing out, and of course, we should not skip over the fact, Tom Bombadil's dryness, right? Um, his resistance to the... Uh, um, his resistance to the rain, right? His... It looks like he's waving his arms as if he were warding off the rain, and he is warding off the rain, right? When he comes, he's got mud, he's got wet boots, right? But his clothes are completely dry. Um, I um, I don't think you know this is like Goldberry's washing day, but Tom refuses to be washed, right? Um, I think that I can't, and this is why I, I sort of made, made the joke of mastery of raindrops to kind of point to both Goldberry's relationship with the rain and Tom's relationship with the rain, right? Tom doesn't fancy being wet. I don't think he hates being wet in general all the time, um, but he doesn't fancy being wet. Uh, he's 
on his way inside to go uh, uh, to go tell tales to the hobbits, right? And he doesn't want to be dripping wet while he's sitting and telling tales to the hobbits. So what does he do? He waves off the rain and keeps the rain from falling on him. Why? Because Tom Bombadil is master, right? Um, he does, and this is where, you know, and conversations we've had in the couple weeks past about what that means, what it means for Tom Bombadil to be master. This is why I can't ultimately take the idea of authority. You know, there were several suggestions, which I think are very interesting, about thinking about Tom's mastery as more like, you know, mastering a musical instrument or something like that, rather than you know, achieving mastery in a skill or, or a craft, rather than mastery in the sense of, of authority over. Um, but this looks like authority, doesn't it? He tells the raindrops not to fall on him and they don't, or he indicates to them that he doesn't want them to fall on, on him and they don't, right? He does seem to have a kind of authority. Um, Meckenbaugh asks, does this mean Tom can walk on water? I see no reason to think Tom Bombadil couldn't walk on water if he wanted to. Um, yeah. <laughs> Pembernet says, uh, if the whole Bombadil house experience were to be expressed solely through punctuation, it would be a series of question marks and exclamation points. Yes, mostly exclamation points, but several question marks as well. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I couldn't imagine Tom not being able to walk on the water if he wanted to. Just like, as I said, I'm totally down with the idea of Tom leaping from one hilltop to another. Um, uh, if he chose to, that may not be what he, he may not have literally meant that, but I can totally see that. That would be totally fine. And you're right, Lady Schmabiok, of course, he would not walk on water. He would skip and bound on water. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Ah, Tony is suggesting that Tom is a Maya of Manway. He wears blue. He's associated with birds. Uh, he loves to talk, sing, and make verses, all things associated with Manway. Interesting. Interesting theory. Um, yeah. And old Toby, you are completely right. I do think, I agree with you, that uh, Tom Bombadil would be a big fan of emojis. Uh, if uh, he had emojis available to him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, let's start the tales. I don't think we'll finish them today, but uh, let's start the tales. So first, what do you notice here about the beginning? He then told them many remarkable stories, sometimes half as if speaking to himself, sometimes looking at them suddenly with a bright blue eye under his deep brows. Often his voice would turn to song, and he would get out of his chair and dance about. He told them tales of bees and flowers, the ways of trees, and the strange creatures of the forest, about the evil things and the good things, things friendly and things unfriendly, cruel things and kind things, and secrets hidden under brambles. As they listened, they began to understand the lives of the forest, apart from themselves, indeed, to feel themselves as the strangers, where all other things were at home. Moving constantly in and out of his talk was old man Willow, and Frodo learned now enough to content him, indeed more than enough, for it was not comfortable lore. 
Tom's words laid bare the hearts of trees and their thoughts, which were often dark and strange, and filled with a hatred of things that go free upon the earth, gnawing, biting, breaking, hacking, burning, destroyers and usurpers. What is the effect of Tom's stories? What does he accomplish through his stories? Notice that one thing that we don't get any indication of, right, or any synopsis of, or anything like that, is narrative, right? Stories, we're told they are, right? Tales and stories, the often singing, but they're called stories, and yet we don't get any we don't get any narrative at all, right? Um, tales of bees and flowers, the ways of trees, and the strange creatures of the forest. And the effect is they begin to understand the lives of the forest apart from themselves. You see the significance of that apart from themselves there? They begin to understand the lives of the forest apart from themselves. Somebody who knows the forest really well, like say, you know, somebody who often visits a particular forest and is very familiar with it, right, and knows it really well and can guide people around in it and stuff. That's knowing the forest not apart from yourself, right? When you know how to get, think about Sam's, Sam's familiarity with the geography within 20 miles of Hobbiton, right? Um, his familiarity with that is still familiarity on his own terms, right? I know where to walk. I'm, I can find my way so that I can get to where I'm going as I need to, right? There's a difference between being familiar with something on your terms, right? And how you most conveniently interact with it, right? Between that and knowing it for itself, coming to understand its own life and its point of view, right? They're understanding the forest from the forest's perspective. That is the effect. Yes, exactly, old Toby. That is the effect of Tom's tales, Right? Again, we don't get narrative. We don't get things that actually sound to us like stories. What we get is the life of the forest. Remember, that's what Goldberry said. He is the master, right? All these things don't belong to him. They belong each to themselves. Tom Bombadil is master, right? And that mastery, remember Tolkien in his letter when he was, inter when he was discussing that passage, said that it was about understanding, right? Tom understands all these things. What he is showing them is he's giving them a glimpse of his own understanding. And yeah, so Amy, you're right. The consequence is that they're learning that they are indeed strangers in the forest, right? They're beginning to see their encounter with the forest, not from their point of view, right? But from the forest's point of view. Um, if they were inclined to think ill of the forest because of how it treated them on the day before, which would be totally understandable, they're given a new perspective on this. How did yesterday look from the forest's point of view? 
right? From the tree's point of view. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Julia wonders if they're hearing the story of the Bonfire Glade Massacre. We don't get a reference to anything like that. Again, we don't get any reference to any narrative. And I think that's important here, right? Um, I'm not saying that Tom doesn't give any narrative. He may, right? But it's interesting that that's not described. If it were, think what would happen, right? Um, if it were, then this would just become a list. This would become a list of, like, the best stories, like the the... the the best of Tom Bombadil's repertoire, right? Oh, there was that one about the this one. Oh, and there was the one about this when this happened, right? Um, a list of incidents, not this much broader sense of the lives of the forest, not the life of the forest, the lives of the forest, apart from themselves. The forest has many lives, right? Because it's not just... A question of from the forest's point of view or from the hobbit's point of view. There are lots of points of view. From the points of view of the bees, of the flowers, of the trees, right? And remember the no, remember the balance um, that we get in the first part there, right? About the evil things and good things. Things friendly and things unfriendly. Cruel things and kind things, right? All of those things. Um, all of these things are part, these are some of the lives of the forest. Um, yeah, Stephanie is thinking the hobbits were more or less sheltered in their own world before this and not much concerned with the outside world. Stephanie, I would add, um, remember the conversation with Gildor. And Gildor's response to Frodo's talking about our own Shire, right? But it is not your Shire, says Gildor. And there are lots of ways to think about that. And, and of course, we talked about that quite a bit at the time with the, you know, you can shut yourselves in, but you can't shut the wide world out. But of course, Tom is showing them that this is even true in another way, right? Um, it's not their own Shire. The life of hobbits who live in the Shire is only one of the lives of the Shire, right? There's also a totally different perspective on the Shire that you can have, right? There's also the fox perspective on the Shire, right? Which we got a very small glimpse of. Um, there's the tree perspective on the Shire. There's the, And think about Sam and his relationship with the trees, right? Even Sam's love for the trees is still mostly Hobbit-centric, right? Um, his, his care, the extent to which he cares about trees being cut down in the Shire is still mostly a Hobbit-centric perspective, right? The party tree is a great tree, but it's for the sentimental, like the associations with the Hobbits and Hobbit history that Sam cares about it most, right? Um, he's not thinking like a tree, when he's thinking about those things, right? Tora Marthen, indeed, the mushrooms perspective, right? Uh, on the Shire story. There you go. That would certainly be another one. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, this, this treatment of, 
the way that Tom is opening them to an entirely new way of seeing things, an entirely new way of looking at things, right? That seems to me what is so centrally important here in this whole passage, the effect of his stories, right? And what he goes on to, what the narrator goes on to emphasize there in that second paragraph is the one particular perspective, this dominant perspective, right? Um, within the forest, namely the tree perspective, with old man Willow as a kind of spokesperson, in a sense, for that perspective, right? Um, their thoughts are often dark and strange, filled with a hatred of things that go free upon the earth. By the way, remember, we anticipated this early on. Recall the... The, when we were talking about Old Man Willow and the song of Old Man Willow and how it seemed that one of one way to understand what Old Man Willow was doing to them in his song was sort of forcibly imposing a tree-ish perspective on them, right? Um, so, uh, you know, the whole bathe my feet in the water thing, right? When Old Man Willow was, was singing of... Um, was singing of, of, of water in sleep, right? Um, they were being kind of forcibly immersed, but that doesn't seem to me to be, it's not the same as this, right? When old man Willow was doing that, he is locked in his own perspective, right? Old man Willow does not see things from the Hobbit point of view, right? Any more than they tend to see things from the tree point of view. What we have there with the Hobbits and old man Willow is a failure to communicate, neither one of them, right? Looking at things from a different perspective. It's Tom who shares, who can appreciate the perspective of all of these, uh, of all of these different things, right? And that is what he's doing. So his response to tell me about the Willow Man, right? He does tell stories of the Willow Man. Um, but the result, although it's not comfortable lore, right? we're told, and that Frodo uh, gets more than enough of it, we're told. Um, but uh, there's a kind of sympathy for this, right? That is, what they're given is not like, let me tell you the story about how the, you know, the, the story about how old man Willow went bad, right? That doesn't seem to be the story that they're told. Instead, they are enabled to see the perspective of old man to see things from old man's old man willow's point of view um yeah yeah um that doesn't mean that tom necessarily approves of old man willow but i think this passage helps us to understand why tom isn't more of an activist right why Tom Bombadil doesn't go about writing wrongs within his own realm, right? Why does he let old man Willow carry on doing what he's doing? He knows old man Willow is bad. You know, he's, he's, he's doing hurtful things to people. The Barrow Whites, not fun, right? Not friendly. They're not okay. But Tom Bombadil doesn't eradicate them. Tom Bombadil doesn't root up old man Willow or change him into something else, right? Or convert him or anything like that, right? He lets him be. Why? Because he can see his point of view 
because Tom can understand all of these things uh, going on. It is, this is the root, it seems, of Tom's mastery um, that he understands. Irindus asks, did Tom build his house in the forest or was the forest grown around his house? Um, that's a great question. Um, well, let's look at what he has to say about his past. It'll be time for the field trip soon, but maybe we can do one more. Yeah, let's finish the life of the forest here. It was not called the old forest without reason, for it was indeed ancient, a survivor of vast forgotten woods, and in it there lived yet, aging no quicker than the hills, the fathers of the fathers of trees, remembering times when they were lords. The countless years had filled them with pride and rooted wisdom, and with malice. But none were more dangerous than the great willow. His heart was rotten, but his strength was green, and he was cunning, and a master of winds, and his song and thought ran through the woods on both sides of the river. His grey, thirsty spirit drew power out of the earth, and spread like fine root threads in the ground, and invisible twig fingers in the air, till it had under its dominion nearly all the trees of the forest, from the hedge to the downs. So, is Old Man Willow evil? Right? Well, that doesn't sound good. Right? Uh, he's dangerous. Now, that's not conclusive to say that he's evil. Right? Uh, remember, Gimli and Legolas, or Gimli and Aragorn, are going to have that conversation later on. Right? Um, uh, things can be fair and perilous, right? Um, the fact that they're dangerous doesn't prove that they're bad. But having under its dominion nearly all the trees of the forest, that sounds bad, doesn't it? Um, dominion. Dominion is a big deal. Malice, yes, I agree, is a big deal. Um, his desire to dominate the rest of the trees seems like a bad thing. Um, let's pause for a second. And yeah, I agree, Marianne. Domination is a, a red flag anytime you see it, right? Um Pause the old man with a discussion for a second to go back to the old forest. It was not called the old forest without reason, for it was indeed ancient, a survivor of vast forgotten woods, and in it there lived yet, aging no quicker than the hills, the fathers of the fathers of trees, remembering times when they were lords. Um, so we have the ancientry of the old forest, right? It is ancient. It is a survivor. So... Not to speak, you know, it's ancient, so therefore, by definition, it's, it has survived, right? If it lives and is ancient. Um, but, of course, the point that it's making is how much was lost, right? Um, a survivor of vast, forgotten woods. The woods used to be much, much wider than they are now. All that's left is the old forest, at least all we've met so far. Um and then there are those trees 
aging no quicker than the hills, the fathers of the fathers of trees, remembering the times when they were lords. Um, these trees, and plural here still, it's not just Old Man Willow that we're talking about, right? Um, he's the greatest of them, the greatest, the most dangerous of them. Um, but there are many of them um, who are have been filled with pride and wisdom and malice, right? Um, nothing was evil in the beginning. Even Sauron wasn't so. Who was just quoting that? Um, there, Tony. Who was Tony? Um, we can see their inclination towards corruption, right? Notice the balance of that. Pride, which is dangerous at least. Wisdom, which is good. And malice, which is unquestionably bad, right? Um, these are the three tendencies that these ancient trees have developed over time. Um, yeah. Now, Matt, I agree. In Forces of Nature... Asking the good versus evil question is perhaps, um, I think it's fair to say that that doesn't quite fit, you know, that that doesn't seem to be exactly perhaps the right question. Um, but, but I don't know. I mean, malice is pretty unequivocal, right? Um, if they are malicious, that's bad. And Matt, I guess here's the other thing that I would say. Forces of nature, forces can't be bad, right? Like a rainstorm can't be evil, right? Um, evil can come of it in one sense of the word evil, like misfortune, bad stuff, things that people don't like, right? It can be an evil. If the rainstorm comes, you know, on the day of your outdoor event, then it's an evil, right? It's a misfortune. Um, but it isn't evil in the moral sense. In order to in order to be evil in the moral sense, you have to have choice. You have to have free will. But that's exactly the dignity that he seems to be giving to the trees here. Um, I think if we were to say that the trees can't be truly evil, we would be treating them as a force of nature and not as an independent creature who can make its own choices. And it seems to me that he's describing the trees in exactly that way. When you do the Bombadilian thing, right? And you uh, you get inside the perspective of the trees, what he describes, what we get described to us from within that perspective are moral choices, right? Um, you know, what what is clearly... Well, I'm... I, I, I was tempted to call it anthropomorphism, but it's not anthropomorphism, right? That's the whole point. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's what's treeishness. It's not, but when we get inside the perspective of trees, not just projecting humanoid characteristics upon them, but when we get into the perspective of trees, we find that they make choices and some of them make pretty bad choices. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Good. Tom points out that the word malice is previously used only of Sauron and later of Gollum as well. Um, yes. 
Yes. Um, Lincoln says, Karathras is cruel, but is he evil? Inasmuch as cruelty is a choice that he has made to be cruel, I'm going with yes on that one. Now, are the spirits of mountains and trees, you know, judged by precisely the same moral standards? I don't know, you know, um, but malice, again, seems seems to me fairly unequivocal. Yeah, Lincoln, exactly. They have moral agency. Um, dendropomorphism. That's good, Julie. I was trying to. Th- I, I couldn't think on the fly of a of a good of a good word for that. Um, yeah, yeah. See that, Valori. I agree. We call winters cruel if they're really bad, and that's us, right? We're not talking about them. We're not talking about their moral agency. We're talking about our own, the effect on us that it has, right? Um, but what we're getting here about the trees is clearly different from that kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Now, well... I'm not going to get too deeply drawn into a discussion on Karathras. We'll get there. We'll get there eventually. Um, within a year, easily, we'll get to Karathras, and uh, and then we'll see what we see. But um, in the meantime, let's stick with uh, let's stick with Old Man Willow here. Um, yeah, Tarlaniel. I think that's really good. Tarlaniel says you can certainly be justifiably angry about perceived wrongs. But taking revenge, especially against basically innocent people, is another thing altogether. Absolutely. And I think there seems to be moral responsibility there. Um, Tom Bombadil clearly is literally sympathetic with the trees, right? That with Even with the pride and, and malice of the trees. He can understand. He does understand their perspective. He does understand their point of view. Why are they angry? Why do they feel malicious? Why do they hate um, the creatures that move around, right? Um, And, you know, this seems to be the description, you know, I mean, who does this? Gnawing, biting, breaking, hacking, burning, destroyers and usurpers. Hobbits do that, right? That's hobbits he's talking about, right? Um, Gnawing? Come on now, right? That was Sam's very word that he was going to, you know, now, of course, the hobbits don't normally gnaw trees. That's a little unusual, but it's a little conspicuous at the same time, right? Um, Obviously, he's including more than just hobbits here, but uh, um, uh, it's it's other things that do the gnawing and the biting. Um, But it is hobbits that do the breaking and the hacking and the burning, and men as well, right? Um, So... uh, yeah, yeah, Valori. Hobbits gnaw on trees to keep their teeth from growing. That's exactly that's exactly what happens. Um, um, yeah, Tony, I agree. I am sure that the ancient trees are very anti-beaver. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure beavers are way, way down on their <laughs> on their list of friendly creatures, right? Um, but uh, anyway. Um, uh, 
I'm what I'm working back around to is uh oh who was it? Um uh, yeah, Tarlaniel's point. Um Tom Bombadil is sympathetic to this feeling, right? Um the hatred of things like he can he can he can he can understand it and and yes, uh you are right, uh uh Julia. Sympathy doesn't mean approval, right? It just means sympathy literally means to feel something with somebody else, right? Um, he can, so he can understand the perspective of trees. He can feel what they feel, right? He can, and so he understands that hatred, but that doesn't make them trying to entrap and murder hobbits justifiable, right? Um, it doesn't make it, it doesn't make it okay. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I I agree with you, Matt. I mean, you know, uh, you know, Matt's saying, you know, he agrees that uh, about the moral agency and stuff, but that there's still just something that seems something about good and evil that feels like it's uh, it's sort of lost in translation when talking about this from the uh, from from the tree's point of view. And I agree, Matt. Um, there is a sense. I agree that there is a sense in which. The simple, bald question, is old man Willow evil, right? Tom doesn't answer that question, right? That's not Tom's vocabulary. We don't get that, right? We get, nobody asks that question, and we don't get an answer to that question. We might want to think that way, but that is us imposing that particular, that particular binary, that particular vocabulary, right? Um, what does Tom say, right? What Tom actually tells us about Old Man Willow is he's full of rooted wisdom and pride and malice, and he's very dangerous, right? And he has under his dominion nearly all the trees from the forest to the hedge to the from from the hedge to the, of the forest from the hedge to the downs, right? He has dominion over all of these trees. That's probably bad. Right. There are lots of things that are bad about it. But again, the, are we called upon to ask that question? So, okay, good or evil, old man Willow, right? I think that the whole tendency of Tom's thought, the whole tendency of Tom's talk, is to discourage us from thinking in exactly those ways, right? Um, I don't think it's exactly... I, I don't think it's the right question. More importantly, I don't think it's a Tom Bombadilian question. He's obviously not interested in, like, separating the good from the evil, right, and condemning the one and, and upholding the other. That doesn't mean I'm saying that I think he's morally ambivalent, that good and evil as moral concepts mean nothing to Tom. He is good. The things that he does are good. The things he upholds are good. And yet he doesn't judge evil either. Um, again, I go back to the previous passage there. What does he tell them stories about? What is the picture that they become immersed in as they hear his talk? Tales of bees and flowers, the ways of trees and the strange creatures of the forest, the evil things and the good things, things friendly and things unfriendly, cruel things and kind things, and secrets hidden under brambles. Um, yeah, he's the master, not the judge, Tom. Exactly. Um, and um, 
Yeah, it's um Yeah, Irindus points out Dominion is also interesting. Does Theoden have Dominion over the Rohirrim? Does Aragorn over the Gondorians? Um, the word is alarming, but the concept itself isn't wholly evil. Uh, yes, lordship. Lordship is 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 not well. I would say this: lordship is not bad, except when you seek it, right? Um, if what you want is to be lord over others, that's a bad sign. But being lord over others isn't a bad sign, isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? Exactly. And Marianne, I think that that's a really neat way of putting it. Marianne points out that um, he sees good and evil, right? The evil things and the good things. His stories point to the fact that these things are good and these things are evil, right? He's not blind to it. It's not that he doesn't care, um, but he doesn't act. Again, he's, you know, again, Tom, as you say, he's master, not judge. Right, that's not what he does. Um, yeah. So Villori asks: Is Old Man Willow um, a lord, or a despot, or merely a a wrangler or instigator? Um, I think. Oops. Sorry. Poor Narnia in here. Went AFK. Do wrong. Um, uh, remember the point that I was making about Frodo's question to Goldberry last time? Who is Tom Bombadil? Right? We've been talking about that for a while. Um, and the more I've thought about it, the more convinced I am that the weight of that question is that who are you really, right? Like, I know you say your name is Tom Bombadil and stuff, but, but, and it's not even quite as simple as what are you that he really means, right? But who are you? Like, what kind of authority do you have? Like, what is significant about you? Um, you're clearly not just a dude, right? Who are you really? Um, there's a sense in which, the same question can be asked about Old Man Willow. Who is he? Who is Old Man Willow? Right? Valori, as you're asking, is he the king of the trees? Right? Is he the rightful lord of the other trees? And thus his dominion rightfully extends from the hedge to the downs? Um, or not? Or is he overpowering the wills of the other trees? Is he bending and corrupting the other trees to his own will and his own service? That would be bad, right? Um, let me go back forward here. Look at the description. His heart was rotten, but his strength was green, and he was cunning and a master of winds, and his song and thought ran through the woods on both sides of the river. His gray, thirsty spirit drew power out of the earth and spread like fine root threads in the ground and invisible twig fingers in the air till it had under its dominion nearly all the trees of the forest. I'm going with usurper and despot here, not rightful lord, right? Um, uh, till he had, till it had under its dominion, right? It has achieved, 
dominion of the other trees, right? It didn't have it. It didn't. It wasn't the legitimate lord, Tony. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, Yeah, Arthur says, uh, Old Man Willow seems to be the strongest tree personality in the forest. His personality is so strong and outspoken that he carries much of the forest with him. Exactly. Perhaps that would be a better way to think of it. Maybe he's a tree demagogue, right? Um, rather than a tree despot. He hasn't, like, seized power and is wielding that power over the other trees. He's more like a, he's more like a, like an herbaceous demagogue, right? Um, he has swayed all of the other trees to his side, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. He has achieved lordship. Um, I agree. Yeah. An herbaceous demagogue. Yeah. I, I think that's, I think that's it. Um, <laughs> Delory thinks that'd be a good band name. Yeah. Herbaceous demagogues. Um, or a good fantasy football uh, team name. Uh, by the way, and I realized I lost uh, I lost uh, uh, my chance. I had decided uh, over the off season that I was thinking that the Vermicious Knids would be a really wonderful uh, fantasy football name, but I forgot uh, when it was time to make my fantasy team. Uh, but anyway, um, I'm not sure. Trying to think about parallels. Like, you know, is he like the Sauron of trees or the Morgoth of trees or something like that? I'm not sure those parallels work, right? Because he's not like them. He doesn't, because he's a tree. He doesn't think like them, right? He's not Sauron. He's got different goals, right? Um, but uh, there are parallels, but but it's not identical. Again, to say that, you know, he is like them is to take him out of the tree realm, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Tarlonia was saying, would, the, would, would Old Man Willow see the trees in Hobbit Orchards as traitors? Yeah, yeah, they're kind of like the, they're like the, the, the Vichy government, you know, of, of, you know, yeah, they're like the, the, uh, um, sympathizers and, and, uh, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, oh, what's the word? Oh, shoot. I'm forgetting the word, you know, the word that, uh, um, the word that the Bajorans would use to describe uh, those Bajorans that uh, assisted the Cardassians during the occupation. Uh, it wasn't sympathizer. It was, uh, uh, what was it? Um, darn it. I can't remember. Collaborators. Yes, Lincoln, that's it. Collaborators. Thank you. Tom remembers it too. Yes, exactly. Um, I think that old man Willow would think of the trees in Hobbit orchards as collaborators. Yeah, exactly. Um, yep. Yep. Um, okay. Uh, I'm in season seven, by the way, of Deep Space Nine. I'm almost done. Uh, I'm about a third of the way through season seven. Um, 
<laughs> so sorry, <laughs> sorry, the vocabulary I'm uh, I'm I'm immersed in just now. Um, uh, okay, um, cool. All right, um, I'm gonna stop there for the. Oh, right, exactly. Um, okay, Frumius Boojum is a pretty good screen name. I got to give that one to you. Um, he says, you know, perhaps Old Man Willow would see like the apple trees in the Hobbit orchards as POWs, right? Maybe, maybe he would. Uh, that seems possible. Um, yeah, yeah. And yes, Tom, I did see in the pale moonlight. That was an awesome episode. Really loved that. Okay. All right. Um, let's go off for our field trip now. Thanks, everybody. Uh, now, next time we're going to move from the life of the forest to the life of the downs as Tom's tales leap beyond the forest, and he begins to, to read that carefully. Watch the effect of that. Um, think about the way in which the effect that Tom's stories have had on them so far, right? And the way the sort of how Tom's stories work, right? And then look as we move forward and we see these new sets of stories. Um, so let's... Um, uh, I'll be interested to see what you guys think about that as we move forward into the rest of Tom's stories, uh, which of course will will return to Frodo asking the same exact question to Tom again. Um, but um, anyway, thank you very much, everybody. Um, we're gonna I'm gonna say goodbye to the Twitter folks and uh, over here on Twitch. Then we're gonna we're gonna shift over uh, to the game world and we're gonna uh, we're gonna continue our exploration. Thanks, everybody. Uh, and I will see Twitter folks later. All right. Okay, so Valora, you're going to help with. Uh, you're going to help with. Uh, well, you're not Valori. Linus is your is yeah. character you're here as, right? Um, Can you guys hear me okay? Yes, yes, we got okay. you. All right. So, um, so yeah, so, um, you're going to help to port folks. We're going to go to, we're going to start off tonight at Surrey Kyla. My thought is this will probably be our last night in Forakel. Um, so I want to look at Surrey Kyla, which is the capital, and then we'll go back across, uh, to, um, uh, uh, to, uh, Kuru which is the last village that we left at. Cause I want to, I want to, I want to see the ship. So yeah, definitely. That's where we will end up today, and then we will take our explorations in a different direction next Excellent. time. Excellent. Yeah. All right, so we just want to head out to the Staples first and uh, see if we can get a ride, and then I'll get any stragglers. Okay, cool. We'll do that. All right. And then, uh, and then from Syracuse, we will port. Well, we'll explore for a little bit, and then we will port out to. Uh, uh, Although, just a, a note: if you can't port to Syracuse, you're you're not going to do. Very well, getting to the other parts of Forakel. Yes, Forakel is a bit of a challenge for travel. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's always uh, mithril coins if you want to drop that out to get a to, to get a stable recognized at this point. That's Honestly, pr- that's, that's what all I save my mithril coins up for these days. It's just finding stables I don't feel like navigating to. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's my number one mithril usage as well. All right.
Greetings. Okay. Yep, I'm gonna missile coin it. Very occasionally, I will use mythical coins <laughs> when I'm uh, to, to get to a quest destination. Like if I'm uh -huh. on one of those quests that I've done before and I have to return to a particularly annoying to get to spot in order to turn in the quest, I will. I will. And make sure you go to Bill Rosewood and not the other guy today. The other guy just takes you to the treasure grounds. That's right. Okay. I'm over here in the blue, if anyone wants to fellow up and port over. Jumping up and down. Okay, let's see. In game time, and as usual, I'm having the same problem I always do in Forakal, which is that I lose my cursor in the snow. But, oh good, it's morning! So we have uh, should have some daylight for our exploration. Uh, I missed the northern lights last time. I was looking forward to it this time. Oh man, yeah, well we've had lots of really good northern lights, but some daylight is good because uh, there's some things you can't see in the, in the dark. Uh, that is true, here, especially so. depending on how many people are on the server at the time. Exactly. Okay, I'm going to start following up. So, this bridge... Is this bridge actually made out of snow? Oh, wouldn't surprise me. I mean, out here in the East Coast, we get snow that turns itself into rock and under the right <laughs> conditions. Right. Okay, so I got uh, Yorlin and Hrothyar in my group right now. Anyone else need to port Hrothyar? You might be too low level for me to take you there. We'll give it a shot and see what happens, yeah? All right. If there's any more takers, I'm over here. Okay. Right, I'll start these two. If anyone else needs me, I'll just port right back. Yeah, this bridge seems to be... seems to have a frame of wood. You can see the wooden beams underneath. Uh, sorry, Karathiar. Looks like we can't take you. Oh, dear. You're too low level for that one. Ah. Uh... Sorry. Let's see. Yeah, so it looks like there's a wooden frame here, and but these blocks do look like snow blocks right here. This doesn't look like stone, so I think that those are those, and these are these look like snow blocks as well. So it does look like snow blocks built on a on a on a frame of wood. Then with the uh, tusks or ribs or whatever they are. Yeah. Yeah, probably would. Yeah. Yeah, see these huh. mammoth or pseudo-mammoth tasks. Um, yeah, it looks like they put, like, decorated cloth on top of the, yes. some of the pylons here. Exactly, yeah, yeah. We've got those hanging. And those look exactly, that's the same pattern as we've seen in the windbreaks all the way along. Um, and then up we have those, st I still don't get these. The, like, green ribbon things. I mean... I can't think what they're made of. No, me neither. They look like they're not rope. I, they look like dyed cloth. Yeah, they're cloth. Dyed. They look like fabric. But yeah. why are they these bad color? And well, all the time we see it. I mean, the ones along that look like a railing seems like. I mean, okay, well, it's probably a railing, right? Um, yeah. But no, all these things that we've been seeing on the cliff sides and stuff, as we can see up above, 
Um, Maybe it's a byproduct of copper or something, or I don't know if there's any metal? copper up here. I don't know. There's the sulfur pits. Does that have some sort of mineral that's found here? Possibly. No, I'm just thinking of, like, no matter what they're made of, I'm thinking of just, like, the function of the design, the poles with the with these, or, you know, cloths yeah. draped in, in between. Um, what did it come from? The mammoths? Yeah. It's not pelts or skins or guts or anything. Right. You'd think, yeah, exactly. So if it's fabric, woven fabric? Well, maybe it's something that's traded for out here. It's considered Do they have looms? But decoration. But there's lots of it. It's everywhere. Well, let's take a look at what this guy's wearing over here. Yeah, let's go. He's got fur and something like, I don't know, woad color all over him. Now, am I correct in assuming the culture here is modeled off of, uh, like, uh, Laplanders and Finns? Presumably. I mean, there something in Laplanders the history of that would be country, a, like, what's yeah. available there that would give some clues to why that color exists or why that's there. Yeah. Yeah, he looks like mostly fur and leather, as far as his yeah. garments are concerned. It's very Sami, though. Yeah, not too much in the way of fabric. No. Um, well, the, his later hosen, maybe, but that could be leather or, or wool or some sort. Yeah. Okay, I think I'm not going after the rope and thread. Just yeah, no, let's not say we did. Yeah. Um, not talk to the master. Well, From here. whence came you in this gorgeous? Not that it matters, because these are rep-based rep, uh, stable masters, yeah, right? Yeah, they so, are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, looking around, this is the biggest city in Forakel. Um, and this house over here is really interesting because we haven't seen anything like this. We've seen the little, like, we've seen igloos, and we've seen the, like, barrel-shaped houses, which clearly have wooden frames. I don't even know what this is. This is not even big enough to stand up in. Sweat lodge. A sweat lodge? Maybe. Okay. Yeah, I mean, like that dude couldn't really stand upright very well in this. Yeah. I don't. Even, I don't know how this house is standing up. It's clearly made of furs. Yeah. Uh, Draped on some sort of frame. Presumably, but the frame is so short and not in evidence. What are these lumpy bits? Yeah, see, I don't know what the lumpy bits are. It's like the chimney flaps, maybe, but they don't look openable. No, maybe not. Or maybe they're propped up or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, maybe this is just like where that one weird guy lives. Yeah, the guy who, the guy who couldn't build a tent. Right. Maybe this is yeah. Like this is this is the. This, the... this looks like my husband's attempt at making a pup tent. <laughs> right. The, the dude who just is really bad at making <laughs> yeah. houses. Uh, and so, of course, has the house right when you come in to the town. Yeah. And like the you know the 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 town councilors are always trying to get him to like upgrade his house. But I, I, I think it's some kind of community thing, but I can't think what for. Maybe it's just where they dry the skins. Maybe that's just where they're just right. Maybe it's just utilitarian. Just toss them on the pile, you know. Because see, this is interesting. Like we're get, the igloos here are much more complex than the igloos were. 
in uh, what's it called? I, I forget the names. Um, Pinto Pilda. Uh, Ponte Pilda. Ponte Pilda, whatever Ponte. it was. Uh, that town in the middle where we first saw igloos because there were no yeah, igloos. Pointy, pointy. There were no exactly. <laughs> there were no igloos uh, down in Capacota where we first came in. Those were all high. Ice wasn't thick enough. Right, exactly. But now here we get this like two room igloo, right? Which we did not yeah. get before. An ex- they built an expansion. Exactly. Yes. yes. They had a nice foyer installed. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then we got a couple little small rounded ones here, though again of two different sizes. Um, yeah, but this one's definitely tall enough to stand up in. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. The door. Oh, Maybe it's the daycare. Maybe that's why it's so short. <laughs> it's that the daycare. Yeah. And, and it's, it's extra warm. warm. It's it's extra, extra warm, warm for the kids. Yeah. Okay. Well, then if you want to get more uh, technical and slightly graphic, it could be like something like the women's tent or something like that for like childbirth. If it's someplace that's really, really, really insulated and far away from everybody. Possible. It is kind of isolated over there. But of course, that's also consistent with the idea that that's that guy is the loser who can't build a tent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah, I'm pretty much, yeah, this is, that's the man who can't hunt. You know? Yeah, I, I think. Well, I, maybe, he, well, he can hunt. He's got plenty of furs. He just can't build crap. <laughs> right, exactly. He's a lousy builder. Well, so, well, this guy ain't too good either. Look at this. Look at the warping on this guy. Well, it's a little lopsided, but. And this door's tiny, tiny. But look, if you notice, it has an upstairs. Like, there's a loft in this one. He's got an upstairs, he's got a second story window on this one. Smokehouse? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and a little chimney. He's got a chimney cap. Look at that. Yeah. Get the snow from going down the chimney and putting out the fire. Exactly. That's pretty exactly. clever, actually. I don't know if I've noticed that on some of the other ones. I need a chimney cap. Now, this house is enormous. Yeah. This is definitely somebody important enough to have many people working on this house. Yes. Look at the... Look at the this looks like... This looks like the... the Windows of a Hobbit house set into yeah. a hill. Right? It looks like great snails. Yes, this whole huge hill. So you know, because you can't make a huge freestanding igloo house, you know, that's like four stories tall, right? So they have just carved it out of the like glacier here and uh, supplemented with the uh, with the ice blocks, with the snow blocks. So yeah, we have this huge thing which we can't go in, sadly. Um. But, uh, yeah. Not to mention this terrace and this deluxe snow ramp leading up to it. Right? Um, it's a little ostentatious, frankly. Um, yeah, Katriana, I agree. It is like the northern version of Brandy Hall here. Um, yeah, is this actually... Well, the bard is standing next to it. This can't be the bard's house. He's just got to hang out here, right? Unless the bard is a very important person in this town. In this town, I think they would be. It's definitely one of those uh, oral tradition and really long winter nights with nothing to do kind of towns. So right, yeah. would have more importance here. Makes sense. This is a lot more like what we saw at Campocota, though we didn't see this exact shape. But this, yeah. like, clearly visible wooden frame with hides and, and furs over it. And pattern cloths again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
nicely placed moose antlers. <laughs> oh yeah, this is this is the one. This one had an interesting uh, test at this one. If you guys ever get oh that yes with the, with the rep for Coracal. yes, the, I, I actually the, love this one. The test of virtues there with the any yeah. puzzle that makes me get out pen and paper to work it out is always a good one. Exactly, exactly. I'm looking at these like balconies built into the side of the glacier there. Probably does, just to prevent them from sliding down the hill every now and then. I'm sure you need those. Does, does that is this is the implication that people just live inside the wall there? And those are entrances to their Summer windows. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. They look like they'd be good places for vantage points too, so look out on the bay. Sure, but I I assume they wouldn't be scaling up the wall to get there. Oh, 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 those look like lookout perches. Oh, I see what you're looking at right now. They're not quite balconies. They're almost like little, I don't know, like theater boxes. Yeah, that's what they look like. Hang on, Stop I'll, 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 I'll set up there. Yeah, exactly. What is, what is this? What is this little thing with no door slapped up against the... Yeah. No, I think those are definitely... Now, we don't see openings behind them, but of course we might not. Or maybe they just sort of parasail from the rock up above. They got, you know, something to keep their footing, maybe. What is this building that people are climbing on? Where's the door? I don't know. This is, it's not attached. It's its own, it's its own outbuilding. Yeah. Yeah, This is the mother-in-law house for the chief. (laughs) Right, it's not attached to the chief's house. Okay, I see here's the closest we can get to one of these things. Yeah, it's definitely got a floor. It's not just a, yeah. a you know, like a banner against the against the, the wall. Druid's Fire thinks that it's, it's prime seating for the Aurora. You know, on nights when the northern lights are particularly oh. nice. You know, you could look yes. out over the over the oh, bay. It's like, no, it's the romantic spot, huh? Oh, you think this is where, like, the Maybe. teenagers among the Lossoff come to make out? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Like I said, long night's nothing to do. Right. Right. Um... I do think, see, Amethorn, that's what I think, too. I think it is meant to imply that there are living spaces built into the glacier. And I'm inclining to the idea that this building right here is the entry point into them. Because we don't, there is no other entry point. Like, we, that's what I came over here looking for. If there was a gate or doorway of some kind, and there isn't anything except for this house. Um, and the way that it is set up against the wall. They do look like they're half eaten by the ice, though. Like there was a melt and something got, they got a bit devoured by the refreeze. Maybe. Something else we know about in the East Coast. What? Yeah, exactly. Perhaps. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, Dragon Rider was saying maybe it's, uh, maybe they're tombs in the wall. Uh, yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought but... of that. It's, it's not quite uh, concealed oh. enough, though, would it? <laughs> I see somebody was just trying to jump on one from the top. Didn't work. Uh, they bounced off. 
they bounced off. off. Yeah, it's a good attempt. Yeah, it's yeah. a good attempt. Props for, props for trying. Yeah, I'm it's not true. sure. I'm not sure it's if I buy tunes. For one thing, the 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 fact that these are made out of hides. You'd yeah. think that there, if they were tombs, they would be, the memorials would be something more permanent, like made out of bone or something. Yeah, and, and not to mention, it seems to be going through a lot of lot of effort when you're carving things in in the ice. When you could just look for one of the billions of caves out on the actual rocks out there. Or, for tombs, Brandy would be a convenient way to dispose of the dead out here, actually. Right. Right. Um, yeah, that just seems like a lot of work for something that doesn't really seem sure to work, especially with all these exposed areas. Right. Right. Okay. Um, Amethorn, I, I agree. It would be awesome if there were an Easter egg entrance behind one of those. <laughs> that would be really neat. Um, now, these banners... We've seen nothing. We've seen nothing like this anywhere in Forikel, no. other than here. Now this is the main entrance, yeah. Uh -huh. We kind of came at it from the side, so yeah. So this is the main entrance to the uh, to the chieftain's place. Oh, the, the banners are to are real time uh, announcements of which uh, areas have been taken over by the Lossiths and which have been taken over by the Garden. Really? Yes. Yeah, so that I just hover your mouse over it. It tells you. So if there's a wolf on it, it means the baddies have it. And if there's, oh, uh, Pinty Lyrie is under control of the Lossoff. Yeah. Norsu Lyrie is under control of the Gowardine. Okay, I see. So, so one is... That tells you which outposts are still uh, are under which control so you and your buddies can form raids to go retake. Got it. Got it. Um, trying to figure out what the what the things are on the side i mean we've got a wolf pelt obviously which mm -hmm. is fine the horizontal stripey bits oh i'd need to up my graphics hang on <laughs> they look like bone but i'm not sure what bone they're so straight um yeah yeah um they just look like beads made out of bones you know it's hollow tubing you could make out of the uh, Fingers or, I guess, but lesser lesser um, digits, I suppose, or maybe small animals like Perhaps. a bird hollow bones or something. The um, the Lossoff banner is rather is rather less impressive. Uh, I mean, the Gowardine one is kind of ugly and rather grim. I mean, the whole pelt of the wolf looking like it. I mean. It's sort of very manifestly a dead animal hanging there. Um, yeah, even if it is a wolf, and they're generally our enemies in all areas. Right, but the 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 Lossoth flag or banner here is intriguingly abstract. Yeah, yeah, kind of is. And once again, we see that rich blue color that we're seeing on a lot of things out here. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know how to interpret it. You've got mm -hmm. the. It's almost like a. It's a tartan, or it's got different stripes on it. Right. And then it's studded with beads of some kind, or those rocks, or shells, or what is that? Yeah, shells, maybe. Bone. It's different colors all over it. 
it's woven into it looks like it's it, yeah it's following the pattern of the sort of tartan so it looks like they're sort of woven into the tapestry mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the top is just leather and fur i think with a some sort of disc bone metal something like that. yeah that looks like a metal disc but again see i'm i I don't know how to interpret it, but I feel the impulse to interpret these things symbolically, right? Like mm -hmm. the bronze disc or whatever the metal is, you know, the bronze disc is, is, uh, um, represents something. I'm even tempted to count the beads, you know, like the beads mm -hmm. around the edge. Like, is that significant to the, like the different tribes or families or something? And how many strings of beads hanging down and how long is each string and what does that represent? You know, like the, like the stars and stripes on the American flag kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, or if the pattern is significant to a certain fa clan or family up here. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So this, maybe this is the chief's tartan or something up here. And then everything else is just sort of a symbol of uh, what, what their resources are. Right. Yeah, like I said, I, I don't feel like I have the uh, the symbolic key for understanding. You know, like like again, the American flag, right? You know, mm -hmm. uh, when you the, the 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 key to interpreting the American flag is United States, right? It's about the states, right? So uh, so you can interpret the stars and the stripes and things. Um, I don't feel like I have the key here. Clans would be a get would be my guess. Clans and families. Mm -hmm. um, but it is intriguingly abstract. I wouldn't have expected so abstract a banner of the Lawsoth. It's an interesting concept. But then again, what? we've seen very little in the way of concrete pictographs or anything among there any is. of the Lawsoth. There's even any sort of government or trade out here. There's not much given to us. Yes. Yes. I, I almost want to take a look at some Finnish culture and see if there's it's based on anything they actually have. Which wouldn't would surprise me at all. Let's open the big, huge swinging door, which always surprises me with how big it is. <laughs> this ponderous door. I know. It's like, uh, man, they'd have to tie the hinges on the side. Yeah. Unless, and this place is so huge on the inside. so often if it had hinges. Right. They'd just have to chisel that out like every other day part of the daily duties. Time to get the ice off the hinges. So this would be a stone floor then? Uh, looks like snow. With as many fires as are inside here, but I guess... It's permafrost. Yeah. And we have... I don't see a smoke hole, but there must be one. Yeah, probably several up there. We did see some chimneys on the outside. Yeah. Stand to reason. Yeah, see, Ms. Ms. Moose, I was thinking about that as well. The high dome ceiling would make this place much harder to heat. <laughs> the heat would all rise. That's that's a cheat for you, showing off how... how yeah. How tall he can get his ceilings for no good reason at all. That's true. It could just be a sign of status in the same way that, like, you know, waste is always how you indicate wealth, right? Oh, just like that big throne. He said, well, he's all the way up there. Or he's getting way more heat than the rest That's of us. That's true. His seat's going to be way toastier than it is down in people, all the, yeah. all the people down there. Do you think that the guards 
you know, like their ranks, like the higher rank you are, the higher up you get to stand where it's warmer? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it would be fairly toasty up here. Let's see, he's wearing some of that golden blue we saw. It's a different shade, but it is there. Yeah. I would not be surprised if that was his family's colors on there. I love how he's, like, casually got his ankles crossed. I don't you know. crossed ankles. He's just like, sup. He's just chilling. Yeah. He's got that knife on his lap. Like, you know, I'm just going to sit here and I look chill, but I will cut you at any given location. That's right. That's right. Um, it's kind of like the, you know, the, the, the sword of judgment across the knees of the king, right? Yes, it's very, uh, very. But it's just his knife, and it's sheathed and everything, so it's not an actual threat. Um, for now. <laughs> for now, yeah. 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 Is that a scully sitting on? Is that like that skull chair that we saw in that one goblin home or something like that? Let's see. Hmm. I think it's a rock. It's a rock split in the middle, like scone of stone. I don't the the stone of scone, yeah. No, I think I think I think it's a rock. I think it's a rock, though he has a nice, a nice, you know, cushiony bolster there. Yeah, yeah. Um, got that blue fabric tied around the, the antlers up there. Yeah, and the really nice moose spread there. Um, and this fabric with. The design. Notice how old this looks. This looks old and cracked and faded. There's got to be some story behind this particular hide or fabric, right? Why it serves Mm -hmm. as the backdrop to his throne. Mm -hmm. Ah, Cool. What's his name again? Iryana, right. Yeah. Cool. Oh, boy. Yirjana, Yirjana. Yirjana, yeah, I don't really Yirjana. know how. I don't, I don't remember the rules for Finnish. Yeah, me neither. I don't really know. Um, okay, cool. Well, let's head over to the ship before we lose the daylight. Yep, yep, yep. Whoosh. Oh. Thus opens the huge door again. Yeah. Okay, cool. Oh, no, I got booted off. Yeah, booted oh. off. It's the third time. I don't know. What, did you lose your link? Yeah, the Lotro client stopped working. This is the third time tonight it's done that. Oh, man. So, JJ asks, what's the fastest way over there? The answer is by Hunterport is the fastest way over there. Ooh, hang on. While you're coming back in, there's a legitimate two-story house over here. Look at this. It's not just a tall dome. This is like, you know... Two stories like a layer cake. <laughs> and actually looks strikingly like a layer cake. Well, it's frosted. Yeah. Dish. Yeah, that see this is this looks like there are actual stairs inside, you know. It's similar to the adage about glass houses and throwing stones, but I'm not quite sure how that fits. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, so if we gallop across, it would be faster to swim, except that doesn't work. Um, yeah, except it'd kill you. Yeah, except you die. Um, uh, yes, you actually die of hypothermia here. Uh, I, I, I do like it, even if it is diabolical. Yes, yes. Um, 
has anyone managed to do it? I mean, is there a level where you can actually manage to get across without dying, or is it just instant death? I don't know. I've never. It would be interesting to like, you know, come here all beefed up and and uh, one fifteen, right? With like, um, you know, lots of extra morale regen. Yeah, I bet there's some sort of channel you can't get past the. Probably. I remember the first time I came out here to Farfell, I had drinking from taking a drink from the Sinister Keg at level uh, twenty one. <laughs> So I was immediately swarmed upon by like all the all the the, the snow drakes. Ah, uh, right. Just you know, kibbles and bits. Right. Oh yes, there is a treasure catch out on one of the islands. I remember finding that when we were oh, yeah. doing one of the instances. I keep forgetting all that now that I'm like level 100. I can actually go get some of these things now. Yeah. Okay. Let's see. So. Almost there. Almost there. Almost there? Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Where do we lose you? Up by the the captain? Uh, yeah, just as I exited the... Okay. Just the chieftains. So, okay, so how many hunters do we have with us? Do we have hunters who can hunter port us over to that uh, other town? We have Kuru Lairi. Hey, I was right when I said it last time. Get my audio off. Hang on. Okay. Let's see. Sorry, I got to fix my graphics. But I can't seem to fix it. Gonna... I still I can't find my cursor. Oh, there it is. I found my cursor. Okay. <laughs> um. So okay. hunter port to which one? Kuru Lairi. Kuru Lairi. Does that you exist? Making that it's a campsite. Or, uh, can you get a port to uh, um, Ziegelgund? We could ride uh, north from there. Surikila. Surikila is the one that we get, which is here. Which is here, which is not yeah. helpful, I suppose. Yeah, Kuru Lairi up there is a campsite, but uh, it only works for me. Okay, you see, so you can't so port I, anybody there. Um, I don't think so. All right, well, we're going to have to get to Ziegelgund there then and yeah, go north. Yeah, last time we just took horses last time. We just uh, took a stable. Okay. So let's stuff. do that. So let's let's go over to Ziegelgund, and then we will ride north from there. Man, I wish I had a hunter port out there. That would have been so convenient. Oh, man. See, I've never played a hunter, so I'm under the vague impression that, like, hunters can go anywhere. Like... You know, <laughs> almost anywhere at a price. Yeah, exactly. It's always yes with a but. Okay. So Kurulairi. Or... Ooh, Kurulairi. Look, I can get swift travel to Kurulairi. But I think it's rep locked. I'm not sure everyone can get there. Well, I think both of them are. So. All right. Oh, let's give it a shot. I'm going to be, if I'm going to Mithril Coin somewhere, it might as well be at a Kuru Lairi. Yeah. So I'm going to go straight there. Yes, but I, oh, you have to have completed the Frozen War. Right. Wow. Well, that's okay. not happening in the next five minutes. So. Uh, yeah. Okay. So I'll meet you at Zeebo.
Okay. Well, I will take a little bit of time. Nope, only goes to Sunni Kila. Oh my gosh, why? <laughs> okay. Yeah, it looks like I can't go back for you. Only, only one stable destination from here. No problem. Okay, so here we are in Kurulairi. Now, from here is where we can take advantage of the daylight. Okay, yeah, so we're not going to go anywhere too fast here for those of you who are still coming along a little bit more slowly. And the higher level people, make sure to start taking out monsters for the lower level people. Yes. All right, so yes, around here we have Garadine, which is interesting. We haven't seen them in a little while. We have the uh, ice, not the ice drakes, the ice worms. The Garadine and some frost grims, right? Mm-hmm. Around here. Okay, and here we see the shipwreck, the ancient shipwreck, so uh, our Vedui ship. Um, so, of course, this is this is the major reference to the one story that we get about Forakel in <laughs> Tolkien's published works. Um, and uh, I was, you know, you guys were reminding me a couple of weeks ago about the fact that the Lossoth are not seagoing at all, that they don't have boats, and so therefore can't have whale parts. That's about when it's where where it came up when we were looking at um, Kapakota back uh, a couple of weeks back. Um, because of the way that they talk about the ship when the elven ship shows up and they're speaking of this, they, they call it the sea monster, right? Like the whole concept of sea travel is clearly very foreign uh, to them. Um, but um, anyway, so, um, so yeah, so this is an elvish ship. It's interesting that it's uh, so close to the shore. The shipwreck, because um, it was the it was the, it wasn't just wrecked on rocks, right? It was um, it was frozen in the ice. It was broken in the ice um, when uh, when a, 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 a you know a deep freeze came. Um, they talked about the cold breath of the of the witch king, right? Yep. So supernatural. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, it, the only thing I can think of is you can get ice like that in the middle of the water, and that's when you have super, you have sort of a chain reaction of super cold water that just suddenly grows and expands and explodes on itself until so you have a big hunk of ice in the middle of uh, water. Right, right. But again, it was very close to the shore, but uh, but they weren't able to to save themselves. I mean, it's... Well, it has to be close to the shore if these people don't know, uh, I mean, just... For the logic of the story, you'd have to be close to shore for these people to see it's there if they don't have boat travel. Right, right. Yeah, though you know it's interesting. Our speculations last week about uh, you know, so for instance, the the dwarf structure, oh, which I didn't get showing up on. Oh, <laughs> of course I didn't get it showing up on my map. I wasn't on this server last week. Um, I forget <laughs> the name of it. The uh, the the dwarf fortress at the top of the hill. There, up above Kuru Lairi, the one that's infested with the undead currently. 
Um, uh, Kibbil Zahar. Yeah, exactly. Kibbil Zahar. Um, and we were talking about the possibility of this being a, um, a, 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 a trade post, you know, close to the water further north where, you know, where um, uh, Ziegelgund is a, is, a, is a mine, very clearly. Uh, that this might have been a trading post uh, for sea trade with the elves, um, possibly back in a time when, uh, which is beyond the memory of the Lossal. Um, but um, let's, uh, let's go down and get a little closer. Now, one thing that we can see from here, I, gotta, I always have to, sometimes I choose the wrong fjord here. I got I to gotta make sure I'm on the right side of the fjord. It's over, we got to go down over here, right? Yeah, yeah, this is the one. Okay. Yeah, that's right. I always forget this cut, too. Yeah, I, I have sometimes come to the cliff and found them. Yeah, yeah, that's the one where I, I come down to the bottom of that one over there, and I'm like, whoops, yeah. can't, can't get there from here. Nope. Uh, okay, look out. I also got, like, one over or something. Yeah, the deer are chasing people around here. Uh-huh. Okay. So we can immediately see that there's stuff built down here. Right, so that some kind of cultural significance has been built up around here. This is actually a place that switches hands. Oh, right, yes. This is one of the stations that's always uh, overrun with either Gardain or loss of defending control. Right, which is interesting, right? So part of the story here is that this is, you know, so that there are those four points of significance, right? Four places where... um, which are, 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 are places of particular contest between the Gowardine and the Lossoth, two significant places that they both try to control, and this is one of them, right? So the, 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 the cultural significance, though exactly what significance it has to them, is not really clear. Do they ever talk about it much? Uh, I don't remember. I've never actually been able to... I was always up here by myself, so I've never been able to defend it on myself. So this is a, one of the few times I've actually seen it in the hands of the Wasoth. Right. All right, yeah. So here the Wasoth are... This guy's got a ring. Set up and looking comfortable. Uh, we keep the garden gone. We can reclaim the outpost from Sea Watchers. If anything's about the sea, its way, its currents, its twist, its winds. Uh, that's so they have learned to sea travel in the meantime. Mm-hmm. Signs of its anger, the places where it hides its fish. We've turned our eyes to the oceans and found a large kill of fish forced against her. This is about getting fish for them. They okay. seem to be simple-minded about fish. Right. Well, you know, fish. When you can't farm, fish are a very big deal, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, of course, this guy over here is, uh, well, free worm have encroached on the outpost and will be taken by the guard. Pretty much just, uh, just help us hold out a little longer. Right. So not much. It's just uh, we want this land because it's there, and because fish. Though there's that stuff about the sea watchers, right? Yeah, he did say something about the sea watchers, and he did indicate that they've since learned about sea travel, or but maybe maybe but they call this thing a sea monster because it doesn't look like a coracle. That's for sure. Right, right. Because out here, boats would probably what hide in, hide in wood frames. Yeah, you'd probably, probably. And probably see maybe two at the most, most likely. 
probably small ships. I mean, there's not enough wood. I mean, there aren't enough trees yeah. to make Th- that's the real thing ships that with. boggles my mind. I mean, maybe the ghost is the reason for this, but you think this thing would be picked clean of all the wood being right. a rare resource. Yes, that there would not be anything left of it. But yeah, we do have uh, the ghost here, and this, of course, is the ghost of our Arvedui, the last king. Who looks very soulful, if not positively emo, actually. Ironic. Yes, he does. It's the hair that makes him yes. look all all romantic poet, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think he's got cups on his sleeves, that also helps. Yes. And a little <laughs> and a little little soul patch on his chin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Definitely Aragorn's forefather. Yeah. I like his ghost. Oh, get up right inside this thing. Yeah, I'm looking at his ghostly armor. The devices on his armor seem rather abstract, too. He's got the star, but it's a five pointed star, which I've almost never seen. Huh. I don't even see that. I don't know. I'm seeing, like, the elven leaf and vine. Armor pattern that you see on some of the default elven. Yeah, we get some of that, but now there's right in his, um, like, yeah, right up in his clavicular notch up there is, uh, yeah, is his five pointed star. Five pointed star. Maybe it's meant to represent like a flower petal or something. Maybe. Long help. Yeah, because I haven't seen a five pointed star. Anywhere, like during any stage of the Arnorian, you know, decline or anything like that. That is odd. Oh, they even got the silver streaks and the long, finely combed hair. Yes. <laughs> yes. They put a lot of thought into his design. Yes, they did. Our veggie yeah, is no, looking I'd like, good. I'd like to pick their brains about that, Star. Yeah. Um, Although being an artist, sometimes the answer is simply, I thought a star would look good there. Right. Well, you know, it's okay. I never accept that kind of answer, but it's fine. <laughs> like a true professor. <laughs> it's, you know, it's like, hey, look, you don't have to have a cool answer, but if you don't have a cool answer, I'll just proceed to make one. It's all good. Um, oh, I know better. If you were to, if you were to put me on the spot, I'd just make stuff up at that point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, then I'd feel free to disagree with you, but it's all good. <laughs> um, yeah, so the story, of course, in the epic quest line, you get to interact with our Veggie, the last king, and uh, and he's... He's all. He's here still. I mean, his ghost is here, which, of course, is not in the text. Um, no. But um, but at the same time, he's one of the least surprising ghosts in the game. In that way, like that is of of the people that are that that appear as ghosts, which are not listed specifically in the book um, as uh, you know being oathbreakers. Um, you know, Arvedui isn't exactly an oathbreaker. He kind of thinks of himself as a, because he broke the line, right? I mean, he um, in you know, in 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 he's the guy who lost Arnor, right? I mean, he's the last king of Arnor, um, 
and the you know the the line of the kings the line of the kings didn't die with him um you know but the sovereignty has passed away from arnor now and you know so like carrying some guilt for that seems appropriate um along with the treasured item along with the treasured item and you know and uh two of the uh palantiri so it's a big deal um but uh yeah. Got all the harm marks of a really depressed guest. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and of course, we have the we get to do in volume three the session play where we come as the Dunedine to barter for the Ring of Bari here, which was traded with the Wasov. But yeah, cool. Oh, that's right. Two treasured items. <laughs> Yes, yes, several treasured items. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was, he was, uh, he really looted the place before he left. Fornos. Yeah. And, um. Yeah. Cool. Um. Yes, and uh, uh, er, er, Erukheb, I agree with you. You know, he was pointing out that he really likes how um, the Lotra developers used a Tolkien hyphen, but in Last King. They're like they, they've hyphenated Last King, you know, in in the way that that Tolkien so often does, but in a in what is a non-standard hyphenization, um, uh, especially since, as Erokeb points out, uh, Last King is is also literally a translation of Arvedui, uh, so that makes it especially cool. <laughs> yeah, cool. All right, excellent. Well, I this is uh, this was really fun to see it, you know the first time you come to Forakel, um seeing the shipwreck in the distance is really really neat and uh, it was certainly one of the things that the thing i was most excited to find when i uh, when i came up here was hoping there would be some evidence of our veggie last king and it's it's really interesting to see uh, the way that, i did not expect to meet him personally uh still <laughs> here but uh uh but as i say i thought that was managed relatively well um very good. Well, it's getting late. I should let everybody go. Um, next week, we're going to, in our um, field trip, we'll be foraying down. I think I'm going to go back to Forakel and then out through into the North Downs uh, from there uh, next time as we continue our sort of regional exploration here um, as we've been going through the Shire and even Dim and, uh, uh, and then up into Forakel. We're going to go and head back down uh, further south. Uh, as I as I'm continuing to save the parts where we're actually going to get, uh, such as the Bree lands, for instance, uh, but uh, we will actually go to Bree. So you know, eventually, uh, in, in 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 within several months. But um, so thanks everybody for joining me. Uh, I should be around next week. Yes, no reason I won't be here next week. So we'll see you guys next week. Um, and uh, don't forget, our fall campaign is still going on. So if you haven't had a chance to contribute. I hope that you uh, I hope that you will consider doing so uh, in this next week. Thanks very much, everybody, and I will see you guys next week. Bye. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of the Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org/fund.